I'm excited to talk about this book because, uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's one of my favorite novels. It's, it's just very enjoyable to read in a lot of ways to me. And, and I think some of that is just because a lot of it appeals to at least a part of my sense of humor. Um, and maybe it does for you too, but I've, I've always enjoyed Vonnegut's humor. And I, I think it's like in full flow in a lot of ways in this book. So, well, be, before we even get to like sort of describing uh, uh, the novel, the plot, to the extent that it has any mm -hmm. uh, real plot to speak of, um, where would you rate this alongside his other books? Like, like so, like I, I guess we could start maybe. What what books of this have you read? Um, yeah, so it it is a little bit tough for me to answer that because I've. I believe this is the case. I've only read in full four of his novels. So I've read obviously Breakfast of Champions, Cat's Cradle, Galapagos, and Slaughterhouse Five a couple times. Mm -hmm. um, maybe some of his short stories, and maybe there's another novel in there that I'm missing. But um, you know, out of those four that I can say for sure I've read in full, I'd put it number two. Uh, so you know, I put Slaughterhouse Five at the top for reasons that we can maybe discuss a little bit at least. Mm -hmm. But I, I would put this one number two, and um, in a way, it kind of makes sense to me because if we look at you know uh, Vonnegut's career trajectory, those two Slaughterhouse Five and Breakfast of Champions happened back to back, and I, I think he really was hitting his prime. And it's right in the middle of his writing career, which was about forty years long of his known published stuff, and uh, you had you know Cat's Cradle coming earlier. Um, and and definitely uh, was was what his first you know big success of any kind right from i think from what i've read um you know he he gained some notoriety off of that and mm -hmm. then slaughterhouse and uh and breakfast of champions kind of hit hard back to back and then some years later he goes into uh galapagos so for for my span of what i've read of his i do feel like it ranks number two and then i'd probably put cat's cradle third and galapagos fourth so what about you? Uh, I would, I, I would actually, uh, um, I've read, uh, what was it? It was Slaughterhouse Five, um, Breakfast of Champions, uh, uh, Cat's Cradle, um, Mother Night, mm -hmm. uh, a, a bunch of his short stories. Actually, his short stories are, uh, they're, they're surprisingly diverse, right? Uh, mm -hmm. His novels aren't so diverse in the sense that, uh they you know stylistically they're pretty similar right to yeah. each other the yeah. kind of humor is pretty similar but perhaps it's because you know many of the uh, uh earlier uh, Vonnegut short stories were before he sort of hit his stride in terms of having a very kind of you know verifiable style right you know like with a truly great artist right you always sort of know who it is right I mean yeah um and, and, you know, with a lot of uh, the short stories, he covers a lot of different territory, right? Some of the stories read even a little bit like uh, an Irwin Shaw story sometimes. Um, some of the stories are, you know, very kind of Vonnegut-esque, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Others are, uh, uh, others just do other things differently, right? So, um, yeah. and and uh, th there were, uh, I think, a couple other novels, I'm forgetting now, but um uh, uh, of the top three, it would be Slaughterhouse Five. Actually, number two for me would be Cat's Cradle. Number mm -hmm. three would be Breakfast of Champions. 
rereading this book, uh, I think I've read it for the first time, maybe three years ago, four years ago, and rereading it uh, now, like it, it, in print form, um, I was actually slightly more disappointed in it compared to the first time that I read it. Uh, uh, and you sort of talk about this in your notes, right? There's like a little bit of, of, of stuff that needs to get trimmed. Mm -hmm. um, some of the controlling metaphors aren't as effective. Like when you look at the controlling metaphors in something like Solar House 5 or in Cat's Cradle, I don't think they're as effective. And one thing that you can't say with Cat's Cradle is like there, there's really nothing that you could really trim that much, right? E even like the like individual little character uh, interactions, even if they're sort of like you know uh, not very important characters, they they, yeah. they all sort of construct this kind of edifice that that all kind of congeals very neatly together. So That's um, true. That's true. Yeah. so so uh, I, I I would not I I, I probably would have you know a thought uh, Breakfast of Champions a little bit uh, higher when I first read it but uh, at a second reading I think maybe you know some of the kind of like weirder elements of, of uh, this this novel uh, made me uh, rate it a little bit higher right okay. where they yeah. kind of maybe spoke to me a little more or I thought maybe there was a little more to them than than they are than there is like in actuality upon rereading and closer inspection not to say that this isn't you know uh, a, you know an excellent novel because it is you know, at minimum, I would say it's an excellent novel, but but probably not uh, a great one, or at least not not great in the same category as uh, Slaughterhouse Five or Cat's Cradle, which I think are pretty similar to one another in, in terms of overall quality. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, and I do think that um, in in the spirit of what you just uh, talked about with with Ethan, you know, um, maybe in a sense some parts of breakfast of champions they they wear a little bit thin or, or that's even a little bit kitsch with his illustrations and stuff which i asked this question in the notes and and maybe you know i don't know if this is the only book that he's really employed the illustrations in because i flipped through the other i've got you know print editions of the other three books and mm -hmm. i have them right here with me um we'll just share I, some of them as you're talking yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, I flipped through those books and I didn't see any illustrations. Uh, maybe it's just something that, you know, seeing so many of them in this one, it made me think, oh, yeah, he's got illustrations in his other books, too. But, uh, you know, it, it doesn't look like he does. And he employs them a lot um, in, in Breakfast of Champions. It's something's going to happen on, you know, every every fifth to tenth page almost uh, mm -hmm. in, in terms of an illustration. So. Um, you know, that, that maybe it does wear a little bit thin. Um, I think there, there's kind of like almost a little pop of childlike joy the first time you read this book and, and the illustrations pop up. Yeah, that, that's an illustration of an asshole. Right. right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it, it's, it's humorous and it catches you off guard. And um, it, it, it's as, as the number of things that Vonnegut does, um, it kind of set the stage for some some elements of like avant-garde writing or postmodern writing that now I think writers have continued to try to latch onto and haven't done as successfully. But uh, for me, definitely the first time I read Breakfast of Champions, it was um, uh, definitely just entertaining and kind of a little pop of joy. But I, mm -hmm. I do see how you could argue that uh, that along with some of the zanier elements of how he tell, tells the tale here could could knock it down a couple notches you know in terms yeah. of, of ranking but still overall I, I think most of it's effective most of it's 
most of it's good. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll dive more deeply into that, but yeah. Um, it's, 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 it's also not a knock, right. It's also not a knock on the, uh, like when he reaches like the heights, you know, in, in this novel, for example, I mean, his social critique, right. His commentary, uh, his jokes, right. They're not on a lower level, right. Than anything else. Right. Um, there's tons of memorable stuff like, uh, uh, what was it? Um, something like, uh, this character had a penis that was uh, 30 miles long and two miles wide, but practically all of it was in the fourth dimension, right? right. You know, like right. S- stuff like that. Like it's just full of like really nice one-liners and also just kind of a- extended yeah. paragraphs as well. So when it comes to like the, 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 the heights of his writing, you know, uh, this, this, this book is comparable in its heights to pr- pretty much anything else that he's written in that way. Right. I'd say. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. Is there anything else just from Vonnegut's uh, life and biographical information that you want to draw out? I, I um, added a couple quick things in my notes that I think might be helpful or relevant for listeners and watchers. But Well, why don't you go over uh, some of that in your notes? Because uh, I had a little bit of comments based on that. Okay. Yeah, so I, I think that a number of people who would watch this and listen to it might be somewhat familiar with Vonnegut's life. Um, he, he is a little bit um, imposed in... in American literary mythology at this point, I would say, you know, he's a well-known writer and, and a lot of people are familiar with him, but, um, a couple of things that I just thought I would highlight. So first of all, you know, he's of German descent. Both of his parents were fluent German speakers, but, um, they decided not to teach him any German and and they purposefully steered him clear of, um, like German culture. Right, so German literature and poetry and that kind of thing, because of the anti-German sentiment in the United States after World War One, and they really wanted to, uh, I guess, you know, stand up as American patriots was their idea. Uh, and so Vonnegut, I think, would say later that that left him feeling a little bit detached and uh, like he was sort of floating. Um, and and his, his, you know, he was born in Indianapolis. His parents were part of Indianapolis high society. Uh, in a way. So, you know, their, their parents had done some things to gain wealth and status. And then um, I think his mom came from a, a, a family that owned a brewery in Indianapolis and, and were well off from that. Uh, fabulously well-to-do, as Vonnegut might say. Um, but then after the Great Depression, they really lost a lot of that. And so his parents became bitter and withdrawn and seemed to really start to kind of like hate life and hate each other. And uh, bemoan their misfortune. His mom tried to to regain their wealth and status, but wasn't successful with that. She also tried to to write and publish publish some short stories, but she she was never published. So she failed with that. But that does hint that he at least had a little bit of a uh, you know an artistic bent in his family. Um, and then for Vonnegut himself, you know, he he became a soldier in World War II, and we know that a lot of his inspiration for Slaughterhouse Five came from that. Uh, and some really direct experiences that he had. Um, But later in life, you know, he marries and has several children. His first wife eventually became, uh, sounds like a devout Christian. So uh, Vonnegut was, you know, a free thinker and an atheist, and he stuck to that. She stuck to Christianity. So that was maybe the main wedge that started to drive them apart. Um, And I think he was, around that time or shortly thereafter, he was trying to write Breakfast of Champions. And so, um, you know, he he really struggled to finish this novel and stopped writing it totally 
uh, midway through and just left it and eventually came back to it and finished it. But, um, you know, you can see that even in, in this work, there are some of those autobiographical elements with the, the interpersonal difficulties characters go through. Um, you know, he, he talks as the narrator about his mother committing suicide uh, by, you know, taking too many sleeping pills, which is a real thing that happened in his life. Um, so he, he has no problem interjecting a, a fair amount of himself into his work. And, uh, and that comes through here. So yeah, there's other stuff we could talk about, but I thought those were some interesting anecdotes. Yeah. I, I think, you know, like, like you said, most people are already familiar with Vonnegut. So, so that's enough, but, uh, just, just, uh, um, you know, uh, his early experiences, right. Uh, with, you know, this like anti sort of German sentiment, um, so, so much uh, of his work, right, focuses on kind of like the silliness, not only of nationalism mm -hmm. and patriotism, but also just kind of, you know, like a local uh, sort of infatuations, like the, the yeah, whole yeah. Hoosier thing, right? He, he hates yeah. he hates the concept of the Hoosier, right? Yeah. Or that anyone would even dare, you know, invent something like that, right? Or to take it seriously. Right. Um, you know, uh, so I, 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 I could see how some of that possibly could have, you know, played a little bit into, into, uh, uh his writing. Um, uh, the, the, the fact that, you know, when it comes to like money, right? Like I, I say this all the time and, uh, this is something that I'm exploring, uh, more in, uh, the novel that I'm writing now, uh, the way that wealth is just so unbelievably random, right? You know, she, you know, his family is, is wealthy before the great depression, after the Great Depression, all that is depleted, mm -hmm. uh, and the 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 sadness, right? The total sadness of trying to like build wealth again. I mean, that's just such a, you know, it always strikes me as a, a very kind of depressing enterprise because, uh, you know, human beings are so, and this is kind of implied uh, in 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 this uh, novel, but uh, I want to maybe talk about a more. Uh, uh, here, um, like human beings are just so kind of expensive to upkeep, right? Yeah. Like they re they require so much, and that that's not you see this all the time, right? When you walk down the street and it's like garbage day, and it's like mm -hmm. one family, and look at how much trash a single family might produce in a week. Right. Look how much recycling you produce in a week. Look how much of anything you produce in a week, um, and that's because human beings uh, uh, not only are they you know, uh, larger than, than most animals, they just uh, require a lot more upkeep in terms of like, you know, psychological well-being, uh, what we need in terms of our comforts, right? You know, mm -hmm. when I, when I, for example, you know, look at my uh, cat or whatever and see how little she requires, yeah. right? Or how little other animals require, or, or you see other animals, you know, like struggling uh, somewhere on the street or whatever, and they never seem to get depressed, right? They never seem to be uh, 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 fixated on the future, right? It's like that. Um, it's like that line in in Song of Myself, right, with Whitman, where he says, uh, "I think I could go live with animals. They are so placid and self-contained, right? Mm -hmm. They never, you know, uh, whine for forgiveness, right? They never prostrate, you know, in worship of things and their own ancestors, yeah. um, you know, uh, and and you you sort of get this idea." you know, reading Breakfast of Champions, how, how, how much people require and the lengths that they go to, to not only keep this wealth, but also if it's ever depleted, the psychological trauma that that, you know, engenders and, 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 uh, the kind of, uh, uh, 
requirements they have to undertake if you ever wish to, you know, make it back, right? Because money is this thing where it's a it's very much a self-replicating process. The mm-hmm. more money that you have, it's far, far easier to make more and more and more of it. The less of it that you have, it's harder and harder and harder to, to make any of it at all. Right. Um, that's just yeah. that, that that's just and that's, you know, not only the logic of money, but it's logic of money specifically in relation to human beings. Right. We require so much. We we need so much in terms of comfort because um, we are in many ways just kind of like very ingenious. Right. And uh, if, if there is like something out there that could give you what you really want the most and for the average person, it's just like endless consumption. If there is some magical thing that could give you this endless consumption and money is that thing, right? There's going to be so many systems put in place, so many fail safes put put in place so that when people do have access to that thing called money, it's just going to start to multiply and multiply and multiply, right? Yeah. well, and, so. and right. And one of the other hallmarks of Vonnegut's satire is, uh, you know, you, you're right in the sense of like human beings require so much upkeep and all these different aspects of ourselves that we have to cater to. But uh, we also choose to accentuate so much of that beyond what's actually required. Right. So, you know, Vonnegut's really good at uh, pillorying this endless consumption and, and the more is more mentality that uh, that he sees in not just America, mainly America, but but globally and among humans, period. And one of the things that uh, hits hardest for me whenever I read his novels is there will always be some sort of, whether major or minor character, often both, um, something that they want that is so desperately banal, but he makes them want it so badly, right? Mm-hmm. So like in this book, uh, one that stood out to me is Bonnie McMahon, the cocktail waitress who mm-hmm. just so desperately wants nothing more than some steel radial front tires for her car right mm-hmm. and like yeah she's, her her husband who seems to be kind of a drunkard and a ne'er-do-well um you know he tries to start a uh what was it a not a car dealership a uh like a car wash maybe oh, yeah, car wash like yeah something like that yeah, yeah he, he tries to take some of their money and start a car wash and he fails and uh he's basically at home just like constantly getting drunk and watching baseball or whatever and she's mm-hmm. out there hustling smiling 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 Mm-hmm. Right. That's the Vonnegut says she knew that's the one thing you had to do all the time to get better tips. And uh, she she really just wants some radial tires for uh, for her car. Right. So um, anyway, it's it's just that it always makes me chuckle when I read those kind of wants, because it's like, well, we don't really get maybe enough of a, a picture into her character to know why that would be the thing. But it's kind of good that he leaves that so ambiguous. That's a good part. Yeah. Why, why, you know, why would she want that more than so many other options, almost infinite options of other things she could want? Um, And I feel like you, uh, one of the reasons why the novel works is you could answer that question right now, right? Without any deeper insight into her character. Mm -hmm. The reason why she wants radial tires is the exact same reason why someone else might want aluminum siding for their house. Yeah. Because right? yeah. that's the that's the other or joke. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What was what was it? Um uh it, it, like the, the line was something like we'll look it look it up later. Uh uh in your experience, when people get aluminum siding, <laughs> do they like it? 
Yeah. Or like, are, 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 they, are, they, are they are they happy? Are they happy? Are yeah. they happy with it, right? Why would someone want that as opposed to this, as opposed to that? You know, you could just switch out the human being, right? If it's not, you know, a waitress uh, with a specific kind of tire, it's going to be someone else with, I want, you know, the front of my house to look different, or I want the side to look different, or, yeah. you know, I, I want, I want this, I want that, right? And um, yeah, there, there, there's this other line in this novel where, uh, this is kind of encapsulated by uh, 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 babies coming into this world, right? When mm -hmm. at a time when, you know, like in the 70s when it was written, uh, there were all these fears about a population explosion, population boom that would lead to a complete kind of, you know, like the, the whole kind of, you know, Malthus thing, right? Uh, this yeah. this uh, a population explosion will lead to, um, you know, wars and all sorts of uh, other problems, uh, you know, renewed scarcity. Famine, um, genocide, yeah. Yeah, and there's this line that, you know, babies coming into the world screaming for milk, right? And like, just mm -hmm. think of that as an image, right? That's just so, that that's just so true of human beings. And I, I always say this, but, you know, when adults become adults, they really sort of forget what it's like, not only to be a child, but they forget the kind of deeper metaphors of like, you know, what it is, for example, to be a baby, right? Yeah. You know, just just being born and automatically screaming for milk. And that is just such a, a a perfect kind of encapsulation of what human beings are, you know, what, mm -hmm. what the problems uh, are of like being, you know, a human being in a world where, you know, I'm not one of these people that believes in, in, in scarcity in that kind of way. But it's true that we have, you know, uh, scarce resources, right? And um, uh, whether or not uh, there's going to be a way out of it, the fact is, like, we would have to, you know, forge that way, right? We would have to uh, invent things to make uh, something out of scarcity, right? To make it infinite and not scarce, right? There has to be some sort of technocratic intervention. The mm -hmm. real human condition is coming into the world, demanding things that are difficult to acquire. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so that makes me want to talk about one of the other things I highlighted as a main theme in this book, and it's it's sprinkled throughout pretty much all of Vonnegut's work, but um, his complete skewering of corporate interests, and mm. um, you know, I, I really believe he does this better than any other writer. But maybe we don't want to get to that just yet. Do you, is there other other stuff you want to set up first um, before we get to that? I mean, let's just give a brief outline, right? Because the, the way yeah. the way that this book is like structured, well, maybe you 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 could give like a, a plot outline, right? It's just so kind of pastiche right and the the plot almost doesn't matter right it's, it's the little sketches mm -hmm. and the observations and everything surrounding the plot that matters so maybe if we get the plot out of the way uh we could just go straight into these like individual passages and, and read them and, and talk about the commentary yeah sounds good let's let's do that so uh, the the real quick primer on the plot itself is that uh, kilgore trout who's a recurring character in the vonnegut universe is invited to attend the midland city indiana arts festival mm -hmm. and he's invited by elliot rosewater who's another recurring character who's wealthy and influential and maybe as far as we know is trout's only real fan um you know trout has has written really really um uh, what's the word i'm looking for you know he, he writes a lot right yeah. he's prolific uh and so but but he, all of his stuff gets published basically in pornographic magazines and material and so he's sort of uh, doomed to this you know back room 
uh, writer that no one knows about, presumably. And, 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 and the reason why that's done, it's not even that people read it. It's just filler pages, right? right. Uh, right. You know, to, to, to make, I guess, like the, the dirty images seem less dirty on the outside or something. Right, which which again is even a bit of a um, a lampooning of Playboy, right? Yeah, that like yeah. does these interviews and has uh, you know articles or art, short mm -hmm. stories published in the magazine, right? So it's it's kind of a play on that. But um, anyway, so so Trout is invited to receive an award and to speak at at this arts festival. He's doesn't want to go at first, but eventually decides to go. Um, but right out of the gate, it's set up to where he is going to end up colliding with Dwayne Hoover, who is a, you know, a fairly prominent like business person in Midland City. He he owns the most successful car dealership. He's got a number of other business interests that come to light as the, the novel moves on. And, um, you know, Dwayne is, is slowly going insane is is kind of the way that this is set up and it's due to the, the bad chemicals quote unquote in his brain but he needs bad ideas to combine with the bad chemicals to really go insane um which i mean there's i think there's gonna be a lot of little moments like this where we talk about ways that vonnegut was prescient you know and what he predicted but that it seems to me to be on yet another way in which he was like able to kind of highlight some of the things that would really come to the fore in the internet age right where people mm -hmm. who are maybe already mentally ill can get easier access to, to horrendous ideas and that that causes them to act out in the real world in ways that can have dire consequences. But anyway, um, you know, the two of them are kind of on this collision course. And so they're, they're both, you know, Trout is traveling to Midland City. Hoover already lives there. So there's a lot of scenes that revolve around his interactions with other characters. And gradually we build and build and build. Trout makes his way to Midland City. He arrives at uh, the, the whole you know, climax of the book takes place at the Holiday Inn in the cocktail lounge, which I think Dwayne Hoover also has a business interest in. And his uh, homosexual son, Bunny, is kind of the main longtime performer there. He sort of tinkles away playing the white man's blues uh, at, at the, the Steinway Baby Grand Piano in that lounge. Mm -hmm. And so um, eventually, too, Vonnegut, as the, the narrator or author of the book, injects himself as a physical character um, into that scene, right? He, he's present from fairly early on in the book where he, he says what he thinks about certain things. He uses I and, and kind of talks about it and, um, you know, enters, but they're, they're in that scene in the cocktail lounge. He actually, he actually arrives. And so, um, you know, there's plenty of other little things that happen in these snippets. You know, Dwayne Hoover's wife had killed herself by eating Drano years ago, and he's never gotten over that. Uh, Francine Pefko, his office secretary, is his lover. So there's some scenes with them, and Francine becomes, you know, a, not a not a major, but maybe more than a minor character in certain ways. Um, there's Wayne Hubler, who's you know been released from prison and kind of loiters around Dwayne Hoover's car lot, uh, and is is black. And so you know, there's a number of different ways that race relations in America get addressed in the book. That's one of the main ones. Uh, and, and then really everything just goes completely off the rails at that cocktail lounge once Dwayne Hoover gets a hold of, uh, of some writing by Kilgore Trout. And, uh, and Hoover goes on a rampage. He hurts a lot of people, including Trout, um, and so on, maybe as Vonnegut would say, right? So that, that kind of is the loose sketch of the actual plot of the book.
Yeah, uh, well, just just to comment on uh, uh, just a couple of things, uh, we could get to Trout later. I mean, he's a recurring uh, Vonnegut character, and uh, he he's uh, pretty interesting th uh, throughout his kind of uh, you know um, liter literary output. Uh, but he's also, I think, probably most interesting uh, in this book. I think he plays the biggest role in this book compared to any of his other books. Um, he does, yeah, yeah. But uh, so one one thing that you said before we we get to Trout uh, was uh, Kurt Vonnegut uh, puts himself like as a narrator uh, into the book and uh, at the ending, right where he appears. Uh, do you do you think that this is you know really like Kurt Vonnegut? Do you think this is uh, throughout the text an unreliable narrator uh, in general? Uh, I mean the the uh, the preface to the book, right? Um, it's it's a few pages long, and the end is written as uh, like so. The, the sign off here is Phil, Phil Boyd Studge. Yeah, <laughs> Phil Boyd Studge, right? So Vonnegut specifically does not wish to use his name here. My guess is usually when authors do that. I know when when I uh write books and i have like uh again novel that i'm working on now there's going to be also an introduction not under my name but clearly there's supposed to be some sort of stand-in for me right mm -hmm. um and and but but authors that you know perhaps uh uh want to make the point that uh don't don't read this as directly who i am right directly yeah. my opinions has some of my opinions, some of my preoccupations, but it's not really me. So I guess the first question is, how, how close should we think the readers that this is um, uh, that this is Kurt Vonnegut right, as a narrator? And the second part is, uh, I you know I, I just found uh, uh, Phil Boyd Studge. Let's say that this is the the the, the true uh, narrator's name. I just found him to be a pretty unreliable mm -hmm. uh may, maybe not in ways that are just directly obvious but there's definitely plenty of hints throughout that you can't truly take his commentary or even his interpretation of events as presented in the novel as truly as how things are right um as as uh you know whether it's like plot level events or whether there's you know something a little bit deeper um, so maybe like you, if you have like any commentary on just the, the, the narration, who the narrator is and, and you know, reliable, unreliable, do you think that's like the, the proper route to go or, or what? Yeah, I think you're, you're right. It's, it, it, he's an unreliable narrator and there's even times where he hints, uh, that he is going insane himself or he used to be mentally ill and, and then he says, but I'm better now. Yeah. Um, and specifically kinda, he says that he's schizophrenic right he's schizophrenic right he, yeah. he he likes the word schizophrenia and he kind of uh breaks it down and he he talks about that uh, pertaining to himself so um but but then he tries to assure you that he's done some soul searching or gone to therapy and he's better now um but it, but it is hard to believe that you know based on especially what happens i mean by the time that by the time that he enters physically in the cocktail lounge, um, you get the sense that you're dealing with like a, a kind of a zany character, right? He, mm -hmm. he uh, puts the, the light out at his table. He's wearing basically, you know, the darkest sunglasses he can find that function as mirrors or leaks, as uh, Vonnegut likes to call them. 
And he, uh, I mean, this made me laugh out loud. There's this line where I think Bonnie McMahon comes around and asks him if he wants anything and uh, and if he can even see anything. You know, she's like, there's no light over here and you've got sunglasses on. How can you see anything? And I think he just says, uh, you know, the, the big show is all inside my head. You know, the, the big show is all going on inside there. And, and it's really kind of a humorous moment. Um, so, yeah, you definitely get the sense that that he is has kind of gone crazy. And um, it maybe in, in some way is like both deriving a bit of like warped pleasure from reporting everything that's going on in Midland City, because it maybe makes him feel better about his mm-hmm. own state or um, that, uh, that it's, it's just something that, that needs to be addressed and, and reported. And, and he's just the one who happens to be able to do it and is present at the time to see it. So, um, definitely plenty of hints that he's an unreliable narrator. And I, I didn't take it as literally, you know, Vonnegut himself trying to portray mm-hmm. himself. Maybe there's elements of that, but, yeah. um, yeah, it's, it's it's an unreliable narrator. And so in that sense, you know, he really does become just kind of another wacky character uh, yeah. in the novel. Yeah. Um, actually, in the epilogue, I mean, there, there's, uh, there's an interesting kind of, I mean, we'll talk about it more in depth later, but uh, there's an interesting kind of like uh, thing that happens where you, you see that the narrative so he, he presents himself as a writer right he he says that yeah. you know i'm the writer of this novel i can do whatever i want with you kilgore chat because i've written you i mm-hmm. can anticipate i can anticipate your behavior right I could, I could anticipate what would happen elsewhere because you know i am the author similar to like you know some of the stuff that that dan does right in his uh whether it's like the camelot quintet you have uh i forget if it's the Danny Wagner uh, characters, if that's his stand in there or somebody else, but in Camelot Quintet, there's this kind of like overvoice, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that that uh, sometimes comes out directly or is like implicit elsewhere, um, right? So it's it's a similar thing going on going on here, but uh, with, uh, with 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 uh, uh, Dan's uh, Camelot Quintet, there's a more kind of didactic element here. It's it's more obscure, right? There's less of an obvious kind of reason why it's happening i think perhaps even it's not even uh maybe fleshed out enough right mm-hmm. uh, i was telling dan like you know d- like d- don't you think that this danny wagner intervention is a little too didactic but in this case it's kind of like well you know it, it probably works better i think than some of the kind of uh less you know developed portions of here because you know like like i guess losing didactism might be you know, I don't want to say it's necessarily a benefit, right? Because it's not, it, it, that's kind of like also like an aesthetic judgment. It's not either a pro, pro or a con, but there's, 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 there's other stuff that you could do with it once you lose a didactic edge, right? There's, I think, other possibilities that open up perhaps even more richly than pure didactism. Um, but at, at any rate, uh, there's, a, there's a passage there that shows that there is an actual limit to his, his powers as the author, Right, yeah. which which again again is one of the reasons why um, you know he, he does come off as pretty unreliable. So when he's like confronting uh, Trout, right, as the author uh, at, on page two ninety eight, he says, "I thought it would be a good idea to let him have a good look at me, and so attempted to flick on the dome light. I turned on the windshield washers instead. I turned them off again. My view of the lights of the county hospital was garbled by beads of water." I pulled out another switch and it came away in my hand. It was a cigarette lighter. 
So I had no choice but to continue to speak from darkness. And if you can imagine this, like if this is done like as a play or whatever, as a movie, it would be pretty humorous, right? Yeah, yeah. He's trying to show his power, right? How he can control anything. He is commanding essentially these lights to tur turn on and, you know, nothing happens, right? <laughs> you know, cigarette light, light comes out. It's almost like a joke, right? It's almost like, um, you know, uh, it, it's almost kind of like a slapstick in a way. Yeah. Uh, but it, it does speak to genuine limits to his powers. Uh, and they sort of, you know, they, they do come on in a little bit of schizophrenic fashion, right? Uh, um, where... On the one hand, sometimes he has uh, powers. On the other hand, like, uh, uh, you know, perhaps his imagination or his fears get, get, get the best of him and he's not able to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's just an interesting, like, set of asides, right? It, it's, not, it's not totally clear, right? And in any kind of obvious, overt, especially not in a ham-fisted way, what the function of, uh, of all this is. Yeah, right. And uh, I mean, I definitely laughed at, at that section you just highlighted one other one that hints at that same thing uh was on page 207 where he uh he's talking again about you know the, the way that he's giving different characters different attributes or backstories and he says and he went on staring at me even though i wanted him to stop now this is him again speaking as the author so presumably he could make him do that but he can't i wanted him to stop now, here was the thing about my control over the characters I created. I could only guide their movements approximately, since they were such big animals. There was inertia to overcome. It wasn't as though I was connected to them by steel wires. It was more as though I was connected to them by stale rubber bands. So I made the green telephone in back of the bar ring, you know, and then it goes on with the rest of the scene. But um, so I think that that's... That section to me served two purposes. Number one is to continue to drive home the unreliability of the narrator and and obviously it injects some humor. But I do think in a way it's also Vonnegut um, who was kind of notoriously honest about how difficult it was for him to write, right? He's got that quote about when I write, it's as though I'm an armless, legless child with a crayon in its mouth or something like that. Um, and so I think this is him talking in a way about the difficulty of writing, you know, and like it's, I'm not, I'm not some grand puppet master all the time uh, where I just can absolutely make things happen. It, it feels to me like I'm connected to my characters by stale rubber bands, mm -hmm. uh, which is, is such a Vonnegut, you know, Vonnegutian image uh, in a way. Um, so therefore, you know, they might be liable to snap at any time. Maybe I'll lose control over the the characters and the arc of this novel and everything else. So um yeah he, he kind of you know it's two two functions there maybe yeah. with with that idea it, I, I mean it's it's also true though that just to reread and emphasize uh, these uh lines like this is a good description of um you know also how art is right and how writing is and perhaps even how it ought to be um there was inertia to overcome it wasn't as though i was connected to them by steel wires right and if you think of like a steel wire you could think of a little bit of um you know perhaps uh wait is is, is steel a good conductor of electricity it should be right i, th uh, I think so i think it can yeah. conduct electricity because yeah. because i know like i used to like 
play with this a little bit, right? Uh, there's, you know, different metals are, are better and worse conductors, right? And you could feel it if you, for example, connect your hand or whatever. I think copper is supposed to be far more connective than steel, for instance. But anyway. Copper and tungsten, yeah, yeah. Like if you if you if you think like in the modern world, right, uh, steel uh, like steel wires, right? If you're connecting connected by electricity, they're supposed to be this kind of like instantaneous kind of um, connection. There's supposed to be an instantaneous action, uh, but uh, uh, in reality, when you're writing, it was more as though it's connected to them by stale rubber bands, right? Because if you are in fact creating genuine human-like characters. Uh, they are supposed to have their own minds in a sense, aren't they, right? They are supposed to be able to, uh, uh, you know, behave in ways that are unexpected. I mean, like sometimes when I'm uh, writing things or like I'm, I'm, I'm plotting something out, right? Like if it's going to be like a, a novel or whatever, um, you know, all kinds of surprising things come into my head because, you know, you always want to think of this uh, from the perspective of, well, what would this character do in this kind of situation? Mm -hmm. uh it's not exactly how, how i would act right it's not necessarily even what i want them to do but you know if, if this makes sense and this is where they're going uh you have to allow things to flourish specifically in that direction right mm -hmm. um because because one of one of the things about writing well is you have to trust yourself enough that you are willing to give up control in the sense of, well, I wanted this novel to feel like this, look like this, sound like this, you know, be like this. And if you're writing and through the course of writing, it tends to take on a different kind of life. You have to trust yourself enough and you have to not be scared, you know, enough to, you know, just allow that to happen in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. So I think that's a pretty good summation of the the narrator's character and you know what his his function um in the book so do you do you want to start jumping into some of the the direct passages that we highlighted um yeah uh, i mean uh, like uh, i mean there's a bunch of stuff even starting a chapter one right where he sort of gives you um uh so if you could think of the the, the preface as the kind of you know metafiction Mm -hmm. right the the kind of like you know the meta structure as well like what what exactly are we going to be dealing with in the meta sense uh chapter one uh kind of spells out many of the uh social preoccupations uh i'm not sure like if you had anything highlighted there maybe we could just take it from there um let me see hold on chapter one i think our uh, page numbers are the same even though we have two different yeah, yeah. editions yeah. of the book so um yeah i mean in chapter one uh, one of the the things that s stands out immediately to me at least I, I think i highlighted in my notes to you on page 13 where he he does kind of immediately set up uh this whole idea of, of like the difficulty of life on earth you know that they're right at the top meanwhile more babies were arriving all the time kicking and screaming yelling for milk uh, in some places people would actually try to eat mud or such on gravel while babies were being born just a few feet away and so on. Dwayne Hoover's and Kilgore Trout's country, where there was still plenty of everything, was opposed to communism. It didn't think that earthlings who had a lot should share it with others unless they really wanted to, and most of them didn't want to, so they didn't have to. And then he, he sort of carries on, you know, from there talking about American uh, society and economic attitudes. So 
you know, that sets up right away a, kind of a classic Vonnegut construct, right? He's he's going to be critical of of society at large. He's going to be critical of America and, and the way that you approach things. Um, the lack of compassion in society, you know, that was a, a big one to him. Um, and it comes through in pretty much all of his novels, but certainly this one. Um, and he, he goes on to talk about the juxtaposition between Dwayne Hoover and Kilgore Trout, where Dwayne mm-hmm. Hoover's fabulously well-to-do, Kilgore Trout doesn't have doodly squat. Um, and it's, I, I don't know if you'd agree with me on this, because I don't, I don't think it's totally obvious the way that he sets up the characters that he thinks uh, Kilgore Trout is a, a better person or a more worthwhile person than Dwayne Hoover. Uh, I, think, I think you could argue that slightly it's set up that way. But just because Trout is is an artist and doesn't seem so preoccupied with material things and building wealth, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't. I mean, he, you know, he's partly responsible for Dwayne Hoover's insane episode at the end, and yeah, it's clear that Vonnegut is uh, a little bit uh, wary about what what art's function is and what it can mm-hmm. do and what it should do. Um, but it's it's obvious as well. I mean, Dwayne Hoover's pretty much a, an awful person. Uh, throughout, you know, even before he goes insane, it's it's just obvious that he's sort of a classic upper middle class American, you know, uh, entrepreneur light type character that that Vonnegut wants to skewer a bit, and that comes through the rest of the novel. So, um, yeah, well, well, to, to respond to that question, you know, I, I think it's an interesting kind of tension that exists in the book because. You know, throughout uh, uh, the, the narrator, right, is making comments all the time about the power of art and the power of bad ideas, right? That mm-hmm. Kilgore uh, Trout is responsible for a number of these bad ideas, and the, the the bad idea that is being isolated here is like, you know, it's the nature of, of free will, right? Uh, Kil- Kilgore Trout writes a novel where um, uh, the protagonist finds out. Or you know, mm-hmm. at least has the assumption that uh, he's the only kind of you know uh, sentient being, right? He's the only one with free will. He's the only actual you know human human, and everybody else is essentially a kind of robot. Um, and that that also plays off of uh, this this uh, broader idea in the book, right? The, the controlling metaphor, I would say, it has to do you know with this kind of like free will uh, question, right? Where uh, he, he believes that that uh, everyone is more or less a kind of machine, right? Um, even like when you like when, when the narrator is talking about writing, right? And he's like, you know, I'm connected by stale rubber bands as opposed to steel wires. I mean, th- 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 that kind of imagery, right, also speaks to this idea of, you know, there's something going on uh, uh, internally, right? That is not our free will, right? It just sort of happens. And, mm-hmm. But I, I'm not so sure that uh, going back to the idea of, uh, of the narrator being unreliable, uh, it doesn't seem to me that Kilgore Trout necessarily is a writer full of bad ideas. I mean, some of the stuff like in this book and in other books, so when, when Kurt Vonnegut uh, brings up uh, Trout's name in the books that he writes, uh, some of these books are just, they just sound very ridiculous, right? They don't seem yeah. like, they don't seem like they're good concepts for novels, but yeah. other times, you know, at the very least, 
you have you have an intriguing idea, or at least the way that Vonnegut phrases the idea, it's intriguing. You know, perhaps perhaps it's more so that you know, uh, whenever like a, a novel idea is brought up from Trout in the context of this novel, where it is and how Vonnegut describes it, maybe like the str- the, the the strength of the idea comes from Vonnegut himself. But you know, if, if Trout like Trout, it's true that Trout is blamed. Uh, by the narrator in this book, and meaning not necessarily Vonnegut himself, but but the narrator in this book, he's he's blamed for the fact that Dwayne Hoover goes insane. But it strikes me as like Trout would be you know stochastically responsible, like not truly responsible. In the right. same in the same way that if I you know if I write an essay or I do a video, like oh look at this piece of shit you know poet. Right. And then some and then somebody's watching that. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it goes off on a fucking rampage and, you know, kills, you know, this poet simply because they watch my video. Uh, you know, am I responsible? I'm stochastically responsible. But, um, you know, that that's not uh, uh, you know, like so it's, it's like the, it's like the it's like the same thing here. Right. Uh, so it, it, it like basically I would say the way that Trout is characterized by the narrator that that part also seems kind of unreliable to me. And it does add mm-hmm. textures to the novel, does add layers, right? It does add a richness to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 it's, yeah. it's just it's just that I feel like, you know, to the to the extent that this is a better book than cat that Cat's Cradle is a better book, all those parts in Cat's Cradle seem to work in concert for you know, uh, any number of, of conclusions, any number of positions that, you know, the uh, uh, narrator takes and that the author Vonnegut takes here, you know, I'm not, I'm not like, I, I just said a lot that, that I think is true about Trout and how it's unreliable to blame him that, you know, he's only stochastically responsible, blah, blah, blah. But uh, it, it doesn't seem to necessarily sum together in any grand overarching, you know, vision, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I I do. I know what you mean. And I I think that with Trout's character, and this comes back around with uh, Rabo Karabekian and Beatrice Kiedsler, right? The two other artists that end up appearing. And maybe you can argue in a small way that Bunny Hoover is a a bit of an artist, uh, you know, playing the cocktail lounge piano. That Vonnegut seems... um, he, he he he's not making any of the artists uh, out to be any kind of hero you know um it's it's like they they have their ideas and they push their ideas out on the public um and whatever happens happens i think with trout's character he uh one thing that that the narrator does a good job of that again is is fairly like fairly true about artists and the way they work is things happen in trout's life and he's always got the antenna up so something will happen someone will say something, he'll be in a situation and it gives him an idea for mm-hmm. a short story or a novel. And the narrator will usually say, at some point, Trout decided to, to write a short story based on that. And I think the, the main one maybe that we'll want to talk about is the, the sounds of words idea. Uh, and, and I think that actually has some further import. But um, yeah, he, you know, he's, he's just setting trout up as someone who creates because he feels compelled to create and he's kind of responding to the world around him whether or not he creates great art out of that or his ideas are all good um he makes it pretty clear they're not all good and then with karabekian and keesler he just outright says he thinks their stuff is shit mm-hmm. and uh and there's a really funny scene you know later on in the book where rabo karabekian stands up and defends his the temptation of saint anthony 
abstract mm-hmm. painting that everyone's upset that he got paid so much money for, which again is, mm-hmm. is one of the funniest scenes in the whole book to me, because even he as the narrator and the author and controller of Karabekian is like blown away by how, by this last stand that he makes and how, uh, you know, the force of his rhetoric, which is just sort of humorous. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, he, he's certainly just kind of setting trout up as a, uh, a, a, a prolific but shambling you know person and an author someone maybe at the the very end of their life the end of their powers um but still kind of persisting still mm-hmm. coming up with stuff to write about yeah oh so. yeah and, and, and uh, yeah. also uh, just uh, before we move on from chapter one right because this is how it started um mm-hmm. i mean there, there's a lot of like funny stuff there right so when uh, uh, when the, the political commentary starts, it's like this, listen, Trout and Hoover were citizens of the United States of America. This is page seven, by the way, mm-hmm. a country which was called America for short. This was their national anthem, which was pure balderash, just like so much they were expected to take seriously. Then we get the national anthem, which of course has like so many question marks. Uh, and it's summed up like this. There were one quadrillion nations in the universe but the nation Dwayne Hoover and Kilgore Trout belonged to was the only one with a national anthem, which was gibberish sprinkled with question marks. Um, <laughs> and like, I've honestly never really thought too much about the national anthem. But when I first read this book, I, I realized, you know what? Our national anthem really fucking sucks. Like, it just sucks. <laughs> like, it's, you know, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it sucks. It, it, it just, it just sucks in so many respects, like as, as poetry, as like whatever. And also it's like, what are you even like, you know, saying really? Um, uh, and, uh, like uh, later on, like, so some of the illustrations, right. We have the, you know, the famous uh, thing on, you know, the, the, the dollar, right. We have the pyramid yeah. with the eye and that's summed up as, uh, if they study their paper money for clues as to what their country was all about, they found among a lot of other Baroque trash, a picture of a truncated pyramid with a radiant eye on top of it like this. Not even the president of the United States knew what that was all about. It was as though the country were saying to its citizens, in nonsense is strength. And, you know, whether you're talking about the U.S. or, or any country, um, like it, it is kind of true, isn't it? Like this, uh, the, the, the sort of like nonsense tribalism of, of uh, a nation state, right? Or a nonsense tribalism that exists on any other kind of access, like it, it is nonsense. It is gibberish, right? But 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 it it is the gibberish that that gels people together. I mean, I, I feel like especially now since it's usually like very kind of educated people that can step outside of themselves and can even transcend national borders to some degree, are you know when they when they tend to discuss these things, uh, they tend to really underrate how powerful the force of nationalism is. Yeah. Right. They, they really misunderstand the fact that most people in the world, you know, do not share their assumptions about uh, nation states and, and the future. Uh, when they think of like a country like China, they think it's, you know, it's, it's communism ideology that really defines it. When, you know, if you know anything about that country, you know that nationalism defines China far more than anything else right and 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 this and this is the thing you know that grants um uh, legitimacy to to uh, xi jinping and you know the, the the odd thing about it is that you know you, you have people like xi jinping that get uh, trashed you know rightfully you know uh, by yeah. by uh, americans but also hypocritically right 
um, because uh, people like Xi have way more legitimacy in the eyes of his people than Biden or Trump or whoever mm-hmm. has in the eyes of American citizens, right? And and you know, nationalism as as a force is is both uh, underrated and it's good, right? That Vonnegut is not merely dismissing nationalism, you know, in typical liberal fashion as like, oh, you know, like, uh, fuck this, let's not think about it, it's not important. No, he tries to make it central to his critique of how human beings are, how the planet is, why the world is the way that it is, right? Um, and, and you know, actually taking it seriously, even yeah. if he thinks it's ultimately a, a, a toxic sort of invention, uh, he he does take it seriously and he does want to tease out the implications, like even if it's through jokes, right? He wants to understand nationalism in this way, right? And then yeah. uh, I, I I found this uh, part also pretty funny, right? Where, yeah. um, so- Talks about but, the, the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like, but some of the nonsense was evil since it concealed great crimes. For example- mm-hmm. Teachers of the children in the United States of America wrote this date on blackboards again and again and asked the children to memorize it with pride and joy, right? 1492. Mm-hmm. The teachers told the children that this was when their continent was discovered by human beings. Actually, millions of human beings were already living full and imaginative lives on the continent in 1492. That was simply the year in which sea pirates began to cheat and rob and kill them, right? And, and it's funny because like even hyper-educated people like Steven Pinker, like th- that is not ever a part of his critique, right? When he writes a book like Enlightenment Now, he right. does not square in any way the fact that there was like a 90 you know, a pl- a percent plus depopulation by genocide, which builds all the institutions that he so comes to love, right? He's not mm-hmm. willing to deal with that reality. Um, here was another piece of evil nonsense which children were taught, that the sea pirates eventually created a government which became a beacon of freedom to human beings everywhere else. There were pictures and statues of this supposed imaginary beacon for children to see. It was sort of an ice cream cone on fire. It looked like this, right? And it's it, it's funny because like on the one hand, it's like, you know, uh, you you have like almost like a childlike image, right? This is something that that kids could sort of understand, right? If it's like mm-hmm. an ice cream cone. Um, on the other hand, right, he 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 takes like which is like it's it's like a little bit, you know, I don't want to call it banal, but you know, some of the description here, like some of this political commentary, it's a little bit prosaic, mm-hmm. but he tries to make it hinge on the image of an ice cream cone on fire, right? Which is going to be the, the the thing that gives like any sort of like poetic heft, right? When he describes how silly this all is, but mm-hmm. by putting it on fire, it's not merely silly now. It's also, you know, there's this kind of edge to it. There's this kind of, uh, uh, um, you know, there's this danger to it, right? Yeah. So- well, and- and a couple of thoughts in, in response to that. Uh, I'll work backwards. So the first is, yeah, I mean, on on almost any page of this book or many of Vonnegut's novels, you could find this, but the examples you just read through do it pretty well. I think one of the hallmarks of his style is this prosaic description. He's, mm-hmm. he's uh, very adept at making you rethink reality and the life that you have and the way that you live it by describing things exactly as they are with a slight twist right so you know it's like when you read the way that and i'm sure we'll come across it in some other quotes we pull out like the way that he'll describe something is just it's like 
to me, it's always felt a little bit devastating in a way because I'm like, damn, I mean, that thing is that banal. It is what he just described, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and when you really think about it, that's so unimpressive mm-hmm. yet, you know, it's the rallying cry or the rallying attitude or the rallying symbol for millions, if not billions of people on planet earth. Like they think that thing is so important and he just completely skewered it with like three lines Mm -hmm. of of prose, you know? Um, So he does that well here. He does that well, period. Just as a writer, it's one of his main uh, devices that he uses. But then I think, I think the other thing that maybe is important to talk about in, in a sense with his style is like, you know, he's an American, he's an American writer. He obviously developed, um, you know, something of a more global perspective by being a soldier in World War II and these other things. But um, one of the important things I think with with making a great work of art is its universal application, the, the way that it can expand out from the uh, the smaller universe that it that it creates and that it lives in. And he's coming at American society from so many different angles in this book and and satirizing it. But the important thing would be that he, the way that he does that, you could do that with any nation, right? So like to me, America has its own, uh, you know, unique stuff that, that he takes on, but he could, he could have been Chinese and mm-hmm. he could just decide to pick out the things about China as a nation and as a government that he wants to satirize and he could take the same approach and it would probably sound just as ridiculous in a lot of ways, right? He could put a picture of the Chinese flag and he could talk about the way that the, the Chinese people have arranged their government or Italian people or Australians. I mean, you know, you pick it, right? Um, and so I think that uh, even though, you know, you and I are Americans, so a lot of this resonates deeply. But I think one of the reasons that he's a well-loved writer around the world is because people can pick up on this stuff and be mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, when I think about my country, yeah, that's pretty much how it is, I guess, you know, yeah. um, so it, it, it works, you know, it's a really um, effective way to, to, yeah. to write humorously the way that he does, you know. Yeah. Um, and it, j- just outside of some of the purely polit- political stuff, right? So I, I want to turn to page 21, right? So this is where Trout uh, is, you know, they're describing Trout's kind of like a, a writing habits. Um uh, Trout's employer and co-workers had no idea that he was a writer. No reputable publisher had ever heard of him, for that matter, even though he had written 117 novels and 2,000 short stories by the time he met uh, Dwayne. Um, the, the, the odd thing like, is this is supposed to make him sound absurd, but Dan Schneider, you know, will have <laughs> many more than 117 novels by the time that he's dead. Right. Um and and we'll have uh, many more than two thousand uh, uh, poems, or you know, in this case is going to be short stories. Yeah. So he made carbon copies of nothing he wrote. He mailed off manuscripts without enclosing stamped, self-addressed envelopes with their safe return. Sometimes he didn't even include a return address. He got names and addresses of publishers from magazines devoted to the writing business, which he read avidly in the periodical rooms of public libraries. Um, he thus got in touch with a firm called World Classics Library, which published hardcore pornography in Los Angeles, California. <laughs> they use the stories, which usually didn't even have women in them, to give bulk to books and magazines of salacious pictures. They never told him where or when he might expect to find himself in print. Here's what they paid him, doodly squat. 
They didn't even send him complimentary copies of the books and magazines in which he appeared, so he had to search them out in pornography stores. And the titles he gave to his stories were often changed. Pangalactic Straw Boss, for, ex- for, for, for instance, became Mouth Crazy, right? Um, so, you know, he, he's, he's essentially serving, you know, as this kind of like, you know, physical padding, this kind of like physical pulp. Um, on the one hand, it's kind of like, you know, so we have this unreliable narrator. We know that he's the author. He fancies himself the author. He says that he has all this like limitless power. Uh, so he made this decision, right, to uh, make him essentially be the bulk in pornography stores. And he's also blaming Trout for uh, the novel where uh, there is no free will. Dwayne Hoover reads this, decides that he's the only one with free will, just like in the novel and goes nuts. Um, and, you know, it made, it made me think, like, is this supposed to be like an implicit critique of uh, Kilgore Trout? Is this an implicit critique of the fact that there is something out there potentially like t- called World Classics Library, which mm-hmm. will do nothing except publish, you know, just simple, you know, pure hardcore pornography. Um, again, like another texture, like another dimension, right? Because uh, from one perspective, we know that Trout does have valuable ideas. We know that, you know, even like the, the, the tombstone that he's given, right? Yeah, and, the yeah. epi- and the epitaph on it, you know, he, he, he says specifically, right, that uh, uh, ideas uh, uh, have power. And, and, he, and you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's not that he's this kind of like fountain for, for the bad. But anyway, like going beyond this, right, there's a transition from this to a description of like sexual politics, right? So mm-hmm. away from like pure politics uh, to this. Um, uh, I, I find this like one of the funniest parts. So this is like on, on bottom of page 21. Uh, Skag hoped to force his country into making laws against excessively large families, but the legislatures and the courts declined to meet the problem head on. This is describing a book. They passed stern laws instead against the possession of by, by unmarried persons of chicken soup and so on. The illustrations for this book were murky photographs of several white women giving blowjobs to the same black man who for some reason wore a Mexican sombrero. At the time he met Dwayne Hoover, Trout's most widely distributed book was Plague on Wheels. The publisher didn't change the title, but he obliterated most of it and all of Trout's name with a lurid banner which made this promise. It says wide open beavers inside. <laughs> a wide open beaver was a photograph of a woman not wearing underpants and with her legs far apart so that the mouth of her vagina could be seen. The expression was first used by news photographers who often got to see up women's skirts at, ac- at accidents and sporting events and from underneath fire escapes and so on. They needed a code word to yell to other newsmen and friendly policemen and firemen and so on to let them know what could be seen in case they wanted to see it. The word was this, beaver. A beaver was actually a large rodent. It loved water, so it built dams. It looked like this. The sort of beaver which excited news photographers so much looked like this. So this is the contrast between the two beavers. Oh, yeah. When Dwayne was a boy, when, oh, this is where babies came from. When Dwayne was a boy, when Kilgore Trout was a boy, when I was a boy, and even when we became middle-aged men and older, 
it was the duty of the police and the courts to keep representations of such ordinary apertures from being examined and discussed by persons not engaged in the practice of medicine. It was somehow decided that wide open beavers, which were 10,000 times as common as real beavers, should be the most massively defended secret under law. <laughs> so there was a badness about wide open beavers. There was also a badness about a soft, weak metal, an element which had somehow been declared the most desirable of all elements, which was gold, right? So it's like, you know, um, on the one hand, you have like the, 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 you know, the fact that biologically speaking, uh, uh, you know, male, female, and most species uh, on the planet, they, uh, you know, sexual differentiation means that uh, uh, the, the female has to be more kind of like sexually invested, you know, having uh, fewer eggs, right, compared to like, you know, endless sperm essentially for males. Um, and because of this kind of like biological fact that happened, you know, a long, long time ago before human beings ever came on the planet, uh, just biologically speaking, like there is this kind of, you know, gold-like quality, right, to, to women, to vaginas, to all this, uh, and gold, right, by being shiny and rare, right, a, a different kind of scarcity um, mm. also became very valuable, right, uh, in, in this kind of system. And, you know, Vonnegut is just kind of, you know, uh, making fun of the fact that if we are, you know, to use the logic of the book, just like machines that are controlled by biology, you know, uh, the determinism of like billions of years ago, the determinism of the, the first motions of molecules that destroy the universe. Um, uh, we, we, we could see this play out in the most tragic of ways, right? Whether it's, you know, the existence of rape, right? With like men, you know, attempting to, uh, uh, when they have not earned, you know, a wide open beaver taking it by force or gold, you know, not having earned it, not having owned it, taking it by force simply because they have a madness to it. So mm -hmm. we have this like very interesting connection, right? Where, you know, he's kind of like making this transition from uh, this kind of, you know, funny uh, commentary on, you know, male-female relations to, uh, you know, like what, what, like what is gold, right? And what has it done, right? To human beings, to societies, uh, what role has it played in, you know, so many genocides on the planet, right? Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, it's, it, it is. It's a good, good leap and good connection that he makes there. And uh, he kind of, he goes on further for a little while with, with all that kind of stuff and women's underpants and these kind of things. But um, yeah, I mean, this whole section, you know, is a lot, again of that, that just like super straightforward prosaic description yeah. of things that that makes yeah. you realize it's absurdity right so yeah and, um, and, and just yeah. one more quick comment right so uh and, and this is how he sort of like because you know vonnegut has uh when i was talking to um well uh this actually didn't come up in our conversation but ethan pinch and dan linden had a uh, talk on uh, uh ethan's uh youtube channel uh i think it was titled leviathan and they were just for a few hours just discussing aesthetics just like we did uh, a few nights ago and um in that discussion one one of the things that i disagreed with was when ethan uh and dan and dan linden uh just kind of uh they were characterizing vonnegut as an anti-humanist writer uh, because you know he he's uh he seems to be like very pessimistic about human beings or um, you know, I, I, I'm not so sure though, if, if I would go that 
far because you know uh i you, like what what Vonnegut is, is describing is just absolutely true right i mean it's just a, an accurate uh, description of what human beings are like uh the fact that they're subject to all kinds of like various lusts the fact that they could go crazy you know everything from like wide open beavers to gold the fact that these could be such controlling elements in anyone's life um but you know i don't necessarily get the sense from Vonnegut that this is anti-humanist, right? Uh, it, it's it's not that Vonnegut necessarily seems to believe that the world is going to end in annihilation, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Which is what an anti-humanist might believe. Uh, Nietzsche would call himself, you know, he would never say that I'm an, that he's an anti-humanist. He would say, no, in fact, I am a total humanist. I totally believe in the human project, which is why I've organized morale, my morality in the way that I did. And I think, you know, Vonnegut would say the same, not so much about his, you know, maybe morality, but I mean, just, just, just look at the way that, like this, this section ends about the wide open beavers and the gold. Um, after like so, some more digression on, on this uh, part, he says, actually, Women's underpants had been drastically devalued by the time of the historic meeting between Dwayne Hoover and Trout. The price of gold was still on the rise, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you know this is taking place in the Sumbies, right? The you know the hyperinflation fears, like gold was was reaching all time all time highs there, right? This must have been in the news, and. Um, it's kind of like, well, you know, we, you know, we, we, we've introduced, you know, rape, we've introduced so many other negatives like that are, you know, uh, afflicting uh, women the world over. Mm -hmm. Right. And depending on which parts of the world that you look at, these afflictions are far, far worse. Um, and uh, but, but gold, right. Th th this precious substance is still kind of loved. Right. So essentially, you know, women's underpants and, and, and women's sexuality and everything has been devalued by, you know, essentially, you know, the, the price of gold, right? Um, uh, set against gold when you think of things like prostitution, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, th 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 this strikes me less as pessimism and more of a kind of call to action, right? Um, uh, I, I very much feel like reading so many of his books, like there is this call to action, like when you read Cat's Cradle and you, and you see what atomic weaponry or other kinds of, you know, mutually assured destruction can do, like Ice-9, you very much think of it as a call to action, right? You you, you think of the kind of uh, uh, craziness, right? The, the total insanity of having these kinds of weapons um, and, you know, get the same sense in, in this book as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with you there because I, I've always read Vonnegut as a, um, a, a saddened humanist, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, right? He's, um, he's lamenting what we've created in large part and uh and yet you get the sense that underneath it all you know he's he's pointing out our flaws he's pointing out the the forces that that we've either created or that we continue to succumb to that work against what i, I think in his opinion should be our actual interests and our true self-interest mm -hmm. and um and, and he's disappointed by all of that but he still is kind of like rooting for us you know uh in a way to to figure out how to overcome these things mm -hmm. um i think he also does a good job you know i mentioned this earlier in the video um of of even though this is a it's got political elements you know it's not totally a political book but for uh for what it is you know he does a good job of pointing out some of the 
true causes of, of some of these problems, right? And I talked about his, um, the way he highlights corporate interests and, and corporate hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it, it seems to me that in his mind, you know, maybe there's still that feeling that like, as an individual person, like an, he still has this faith or this belief that individual humans and then humans collectively can do good. But when we organize ourselves into these um, in groups and out groups and power structures and what we allow to, to have power, um, that's when we start to really come up short and fail and mm-hmm. just, you know, get particularly greedy, gain some kind of madness for money or power or, yeah. um, you know, whatever it might be. And, you know, there's so many different, uh, like companies and, and corporate things he sprinkles throughout this book. So you've got like, um, general mills, right. He talks about like the, the, the title of the book itself was lifted from general mills, mm-hmm. um, corporation, but it's not, you know, it's not meant to disparage them or their fine products. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about, you know, Hertz makes an appearance in here. Ajax makes an appearance in here. Uh, he talks about Barytron, which mm-hmm. is like the, the war chemicals and, and, uh, the war machine company, but then they become just appalled to find out that they might be polluting sugar Creek because mm-hmm. they, uh, outsourced the, the runoff job to the Maritimo brothers and the, and the mob who mm-hmm. acted like it was a good job, but they really just had the, all the waste flow straight into the Creek and how they were just, uh, they had always tried to be purveyors of good corporate responsibility mm-hmm. and always provided pride of themselves in that no matter what the cost and so there's just all these ways that he's like you know showing you if you've got any you know, kind of sense whatsoever he's like so you realize that like there are a lot of real corporations this is exactly how they behave right and, yeah. and he's just you know kind of pointing that out in in a, a humorous way but um so anyway yeah I, I mean i think we've probably covered that pretty well if we want to trudge on with do, do, do you have quotes? anything before a chapter eight? Because after this, I'm just tackling chapter eight. Uh, no, I, I'm good to jump ahead to chapter eight. That's probably right. where my next highlighted section comes from or chapter nine-ish. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a uh, 76 uh, through 78. Um, so uh, uh, Kilgore Trout suddenly gets this money from, uh, what is it? Elliot Rosewater, right? Elliot Rosewater is the one that sends them uh, this uh, money because he's, he's this... Uh, a big fan. Oh, I, I also wrote God. Uh, I also read uh, God bless you, uh, Doctor, uh, not Doctor, uh, Mr. Mr. Rosewater. Yeah. Um, and so character obviously figures much more prominently in that in that novel. But you know, he's this a uh, rich uh, inhabitant of Midland County, and he's uh, like the the biggest and perhaps only fan of Kilgore Trout's writing, and he finally tracks him down in this book. And he decides to send him all this money to come speak at this uh, Midland uh, County Arts Festival, right? Which is why he's he's uh, on his way there. So on his way there, uh, he had this money, in, uh, half of it rather in his pocket. The other half he puts into the bank. And uh, he's he suddenly finds himself like, you know, knocked unconscious, right? And robbed. And this is how it's described. The next thing he knew, he was on his hands and knees on a Hannibal Accord underneath the Queensboro Bridge at 59th Street with the East River nearby. His trousers and underpants were around his ankles. His money was gone. His parcels were scattered around him, the tuxedo, the new shirt, the books, blood seeped from one ear. 
The police caught him in the act of pulling up his trousers. They dazzled him with a spotlight as he leaned against the blackboard, the, the backboard of the Hannibal court and fumbled foolishly with his belt and the buttons on his fly. The police supposed that they had caught him committing some public nuisance, had caught him working with an old man's limited palate of excrement and alcohol. He wasn't quite penniless. There was a $10 bill in the watch pocket, pocket of his pants. Uh, then when he's asked about this, uh, uh, e the, the pure evil in the white Oldsmobile, how this happened to him, the way that he answers it is, for all I know, they may not even have been earthlings, said Trout. For all I know, that car may have been occupied by an intelligent gas from Pluto. Trout said this so innocently, but his comment turned out to be the first germ in an epidemic of mind poisoning. Here is how the disease was spread. A reporter wrote a story for the New York Post the next day, and he led off with the quotation from Trout. The story appeared under this headline, Pluto Bandits Kidnap Pair. Trout's name was given as Kilmer Trotter, incidentally, address unknown. His age was given as 82. Other papers copied the story, rewrote it some. They all hung on to the joke about Pluto, spoke knowingly of the Pluto gang, and reporters asked police for any new information on the Pluto gang, so police went looking for information on the Pluto gang. So New Yorkers, who had so many nameless terrors, were easily taught to fear something seemingly specific, the Pluto gang. They bought new locks for their doors and gratings for their windows to keep out the Pluto gang. They stopped going to theaters at night for fear of the Pluto gang. Foreign newspapers spread the terror, ran articles on how persons thinking of visiting New York might keep to a certain few streets in Manhattan and stand a fair chance of avoiding the Pluto gang. In one of New York City's many ghettos for dark-skinned people, a group of Puerto Rican boys gathered together in the basement of an abandoned building. They were small, but they were numerous and volatile. They wished to become frightening in order to defend themselves and their friends and families, something the police wouldn't do. They also wanted to drive the drug peddlers out of the neighborhood and to get enough publicity, which was very important, to catch the attention of the government so that the government could do a better job of picking up the garbage and so on. One of them, Jose Mendoza, was a fairly good painter. So he painted the emblem of their new gang on the backs of the members' jackets. This was it. That's the picture mm -hmm. of the Pluto gang. And uh, I, I found this a very kind of telling and very, very kind of subtle commentary, right? It's supposed to be this like funny thing that happens to Trout, right? He gets he gets beat up and, uh, you know, this uh, this media e ecosystem runs away with his uh, comet and turns it into yeah. the, Pl the Pluto gang. <laughs> And you know, on the, you see two things happening though. You see, on the one hand, what um, uh, the kind of you know, like the white world is doing uh, with this stuff that they have you know less to fear with, uh, and they're turning it almost into a personal adventure, right? Yeah. All these like places, even international, they have absolutely nothing to do do with New York City, but are just trying to sell papers or just trying to like sort of like be in the know or trying to uh, uh, again like just just play with a story that makes their lives more exciting. 
they yeah. turned it, they, they turned this into the Pluto gang in the same way that right now, you know, we have politics that have more or less devolved in the liberal side to, you know, a bunch of people that are sitting around that are well-to-do, that are educated, that can do whatever they want with their leisure time. So they decide to emotionally invest in politics uh, uh, with policies that have absolutely nothing to do with them, right? They could pretend that they could be into into like the minimum wage, or they pretend like they're into like universal healthcare or whatever. And in fact, it doesn't matter to them because they have no actual right material interest in many of these policies passing. On the other hand, you have an actual Pluto gang that develops like you know in in a ghetto, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's because well, suddenly we have this thing in the ecosystem in the media ecosystem. That is a point of fear, and you have a bunch of poor people that uh, want to protect themselves, as is phrased, and their friends and families, and they're going to use that right to their advantage. Right to them, it's not a game. Right to them, they could use the gamified portion of this narrative uh, to their advantage, but to them, it's not a game. To them, and it, and it also strikes me how like how true like the commentary is like before we even sort of understood why um you know uh, crime is is higher or lower in some places why you know the police is trusted versus not trusted you know vonnegut kind of like said it flat out right he was like you know um uh, the police would not protect them you know the the, the people mm-hmm. don't don't expect the the police to do it and because the the police uh, is not a force that is considered credible or trustworthy you cannot go to the police with your problems so you have to go to the gang with your problems right um so uh like this thing that's supposed to be funny itself turns into this wider political comment right in a way that's just very easy to continue either viewing as a joke you know as part of the joke when it's not right it's serious or Mm -hmm. be just like you know implicitly miss it all together and maybe you know skim past this part yeah yeah that's that's all well said and i i mean i didn't really key in on any of that when i was reading through it so i when i was looking over your notes i saw your commentary on this and rereading it again here yeah you can definitely see that it's also one more instance where um trout's ideas you know just sort of mm-hmm. germinate well beyond yeah. his intentions right i mean he's yeah. a science fiction writer so he's just kind of being cheeky maybe and saying yeah for all i know it was an intelligent gas from pluto and then it, it's um you know the way he knocks it into this mass hysteria in a way and and it's, it's probably also a bit of a, a comment on just the media engine right and uh mm-hmm. the way that they can kind of devise things and 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 then incite some kind of mind poison you know the way that uh mm-hmm he talks about it so it's you know trout can create mind poison on a small scale with one person for Dwayne hoover and he can do it on a large scale with the mm-hmm. pluto gang yeah um i mean do, do, uh, did, did you have anything else from that chapter or like what else do you want to tackle because i got notes uh, starting from chapter 12 again yeah i think um let me just let me just look to see we can probably keep moving let me just see if i had anything else um yeah, my next major thing is pages 86 and 87, which is in chapter 10. Yeah, so um, let me just point this out real quick. This was kind of an interesting thing. So this is, I guess we didn't say that the way Trout is getting to the arts festival is by hitchhiking, mm-hmm. right? So he like doesn't have a car of his own. He, yeah. he can't even af- afford the bus or the train, right? So he's like literally has that much uh, difficulty. He truly has doodly squat. 
And so he's having these conversations along the way with the different people that pick him up. And so um, this is in page 86. It says he had a, or yeah, at the top, the driver said he used to be a hunter and a fisherman long ago. It broke his heart when he imagined that what the marshes and meadows had been like only a hundred years before. And when you think of the shit that most of these factories make, wash day products, cat food, pop, he had a point. The planet was being destroyed by manufacturing processes and what was being manufactured was lousy by and large. Then, which we've talked about before, I think is, you know, does capitalism actually produce things of value, right? Mm -hmm. There's so much of, of little to no value that gets made just so people can make a buck. But anyway, well, well, cat food is definitely a value. I don't know why it's put in that category. Yeah, cat cat food is is, uh, is important. <laughs> then Trout made a good point too. Well, he said, I used to be a conservationist. I used to weep and wail about people shooting bald eagles with automatic shotguns from helicopters and all that, but I gave it up. There's a river in Cleveland which is so polluted that it catches fire about once a year. That used to make me sick, but I laugh about it now. When some tanker accidentally dumps its load in the ocean and kills millions of birds and billions of fish, I say, more power to Standard Oil or whoever it was that dumped it. Trout raised his arms in celebration. Up your ass with mobile gas, he said. The driver was upset by this. You're kidding, he said. I realized, said Trout, that God wasn't any conservationist. So for anybody else to be one was sacrilegious and a waste of time. You ever see one of his volcanoes or tornadoes or tidal waves? Anybody ever tell you about the ice ages he arranges for every half million years? How about Dutch elm disease? There's a nice conversation measure for you, conservation measure for you. That's God, not man. Just about the time we got our rivers cleaned up, he'd probably have the whole galaxy go up like a celluloid collar. That's what the star of Bethlehem was, you know. What was the star of Bethlehem, said the driver. A whole galaxy going up like a celluloid collar, said Trout. Um, so it's just kind of interesting because once again, you know, this is a way where it's kind of goes on with this conversation, but Vonnegut, uh, is continuing to, to not cast Trout as some kind of, you know, great person. Um, certainly like this, this set of ideals, if Trout is to be believed, this is actually how he approaches, you know, the ideas of the environment and conservation now, you know, is like not a liberal in any sense, right? Mm -hmm. More power to standard oil is what he's saying. Um, but he does make, you know, kind of this tongue in cheek point about like the nature of the universe and, and God, if he does exist, you know, just like things are coming into being and then being viciously destroyed every nanosecond of every day around the galaxy. And so like, who am I to try to say what shouldn't, shouldn't be happening now? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, th I think you and I would argue that clearly, you know, there's a difference where pe we know better. Right. So, you know, we, we again, you're going to have some kind of uh corporation producing some good and and if they just have all these intense negative externalities then you know whatever i mean that's a poor attitude to have but mm. um just more interesting characterization of trout because i when i read that it was different than what i expected his stance to be right yeah. and uh, vonnegut's not painting him in a a great light at least by like traditional uh more you know more left-wing values there yeah so and I mean, in terms of like some of the tensions about like Trout's ideas and, you know, the narrator's uh, opinions uh, on him, I mean, this, this could be, you know, considered uh, one of the bad ideas, right. Mm -hmm. That that's alluded to, uh, but yeah, it's also a little bit of a, uh, you know, uh, it's a little bit of a Howard Bloom 
uh, take on the environment, right? Where right. You, right. You, you, you have people like Bloom that that argue, you know, the the vast majority of something like climate change or whatever else is is coming along due to uh, natural factors, right? I mean, it is it is true in terms of like. Uh, when we look back in history, um, you know, like dinosaur age or whatever, I mean, there, there were no, you know, the polar ice caps, like there was no, there was no uh, winter anywhere. It was just, mm -hmm. uh, you know, more or less a kind of like humid and endless uh, summer, right? Simply because there was far more uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere then than there is now. And, you know, we, we have uh, this kind of like, uh, uh, you know, this kind of like ebb and flow, of carbon dioxide, uh, among other things, uh, within the environment that that causes all, all sorts of changes in the planet, um, and uh, it, it is true that you always have to sort of strike a balance between what you can do versus uh, what what is a, a natural uh, process, right? So, um, uh, but uh, not not to like whitewash this this commentary though. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, so. Yeah, so again, like skip ahead to your next highlighted yeah, so, passage. Yeah. So in chapter, so this is more kind of like the the monetary commentary, right? So on ch on chapter twelve, uh, page one hundred eight, um, there's like this uh, this idea of like you know privilege earned, unearned, that kind of thing. Um, the governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller, shook Trout's hand in a co-host grocery store one time. Trout had no idea who he was. As a science fiction writer, he should have been flabbergasted to come so close to such a man. Rockefeller wasn't merely governor. Because of the peculiar laws in that part of the planet, Rockefeller was allowed to own vast areas of Earth's surface and the petroleum and other valuable minerals underneath the surface as well. He owned or controlled more of the planet than many nations. This had been his destiny since infancy. He had been born into that cockamamie proprietorship. How's it going, fella? Governor Rockefeller asked him. About the same, said Kilgore Trout. Um, so, so uh, I mean, like, th th this is, like, if you just think about the implications, right? Some of the stuff that is being spelled out right when people discuss like you know state power versus corporate power capitalism versus socialism i mean you know some some of the very same kind of arguments i would make in a more kind of long-winded essay-esque uh, way right when i'm trying to argue with people about these points this is kind of like said in the sentence like you know po pose this question to yourself do you think that this is a sensible arrangement he owned or controlled more the planet than many nations should a private individual have more say about you know the world than a nation state right the nation state exists as a kind of you know uh, uh it's it's basically a, as a means of procuring the collective good right it's it's a way of dealing with the public commons right mm -hmm. it's a it's a way of uh providing what cannot be provided otherwise or rather even if you make could make the argument that well, technically, you know, everybody could provide for themselves. Even if you want to make that argument, a nation state by wielding and leveraging federal power, federated power, right? Um, it can far more effectively wield power. It could far more effectively provide for the collective good and to deal with the uh, the, the the commons in a way that you know, uh, a doesn't necessarily deplete it 
depending on how it's organized or be, you know, uses it in a way that um, uh, is, is actually useful and is more of an investment rather than a source of depletion. Right. And just, just like, you know, these like little individual sentences, right. That kind of like spell out what, what all of this entails. I mean, you know, like born into, to essentially lord over this kind of territory and, you know, for what, right. There's no evidence whatsoever that Rockefeller would be better at it than anybody else. Right. This is not a meritocracy. Mm -hmm. There's also no evidence that uh, it's actually better, right. For the public good that a private individual would be uh, um, able to do this versus anybody else, right? And this is just like a simple little paragraph. And of course, there's that bit of dialogue, right? How's it going, fella? Right, this, you know, it's almost kind of this kind of sention about mm -hmm. the same, right? Which is also <laughs> like, you know, like, it's not uh, uh, like, like a phrase like about the same, like, of course, he could just be talking about like, yeah, things are more or less the same for me as they've always been. But of course, like it, next to this paragraph about the same also has this kind of like feeling, right? This, this like little texture of um, uh, uh, more or less how you're doing, right? Which is not, yeah. right? We know that it's yeah. not the case. So, yeah. and, ju and just, just well, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, go ahead. Well, it's, it's, also, it's also just a funny reply to that question because, I, I mean, I, I was getting from this that, you know, they don't really know each other at all, right? So how would Rockefeller know what the same is for Kilgore mm -hmm. Trout? You know, it's, it's just, it's just a, a funny thing for Trout to say. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, it's similar to what we were talking about with the Pluto gang there, there again, you know, just another real quick commentary on a big issue. And I think I, I said it um, in my notes to you about, I, I forget what exactly, maybe it's coming up the, the reindeer uh, problem with mm -hmm. Harry LeSabre and, you know, like the race relations, the way that black people are talked about in this, um, in this mm -hmm. town. But yeah, this is, it's, it's kind of classic Vonnegut, you know, where he's, uh, it's just dense. He's uh, w what I said to you, you know, punching heavy within a limited space. Right. Um, he's just able to kind of get it a couple, a couple blows in, in a few sentences or a paragraph mm -hmm. on a big topic that yeah. again, just kind of as you, you as the reader, it, it's maybe a quick, you know, like put the book down for a minute thing. And like, yeah, you know, when it's framed up that way, this particular issue, like whether Vonnegut is trying to, you know, convince you of his personal viewpoint or, or whatever, it doesn't really matter, but it's like, no matter what you, you realize that there's credibility to mm -hmm. the position being stated um, through these characters. So yeah, and, the, uh, the next thing I had is getting onto this, uh, the sounds of words idea. That, um well actually actually j just under the passage that i read right back in 109 uh it's not political it's just like uh, i just thought it was funny right um yeah <laughs> after insisting so that like trout is being you know he's hitchhiking with this uh, trucker uh after insisting that trout had a rich social life the driver pretended again for his own gratification that trout had be begged to know what the sex life of a transcontinental truck driver was like. Trout had bagged no such thing. You want to know how truck drivers make out with women, right? The driver said. You have this idea that every driver you see is fucking up a storm from coast to coast, right? <laughs> trout shrugged. <laughs> like, I like how Trout just like, you know, has like no interest in this. Yeah. And then this is the way that, that the shrug is being described. 
the truck driver became embittered by Trout, scolded him for being so salaciously misinformed. Let me tell you, Kilgore, he hesitated. That's your name, right? Yes, said Trout. He had forgotten the driver's name a hundred times. Every time Trout looked away from him, Trout forgot not only his name, but his face too. Kilgore, goddammit, the driver said. If I was to have my rig break down in co-host, for instance, and I was to have to stay there for two days while it was worked on, how easy you think it would be me it would be for me to get laid while I was there, a stranger looking the way I do. It would depend on how determined you were, said Trout. The driver sighed. Yeah, God, he said. He he said, and he despaired for himself. That's probably the story of my life. Not enough determination. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, like on the one hand, like, you know, this driver is, is, is presented as a kind of like slightly pathetic figure. Uh, uh, you know, on, on the other hand, like there's, there's this kind of like knowing reality that, um, uh, you know, like most people on the one hand, a, they don't have enough determination. I mean, this is just kind of the nature of, again, going back to biology, going back to the kind of precepts in the book that were all machines, you know, uh, laziness developed as a kind of like, uh, you know, a biological mechanism to conserve energy when it wasn't necessary to be used, right? I mean, in, in lots of societies, lots of like pre-industrial, prehistoric societies as well, you know, you could have like an average uh, of like four to six hours a day of work, right? Which means that, you know, in, in a pl- at a time when you could very easily starve, doing more than four to six hours of work if you don't need to, that's not a very good, uh, uh, you know, uh, trade-off. Uh, but then on the other hand, we know that most likely it's not even the issue of determination, right? That's uh, uh, at issue here, right? That's that's not really what we're talking about because even if you can make that statement about most people on the planet, not enough determination, it's not a determination that got Nelson Rockefeller, you know, from infancy, you know, uh, uh, control over more land than entire uh, nation states have control over, mm-hmm. right? That's not a determination. In fact, when you think about the kind of work that a, a truck driver must do, which is away from family, away from comforts, constantly getting fucking hemorrhoids from like, you know, rioting 12 hours a day, it's a dangerous job uh, on top of it. Yeah. Um, you know, the, you know, like, uh, and, you know, like Vonnegut understands this, right? He understands the kind of uh, uh, problems with, with uh, manual labor, right? So, it's like, you know, it's this like self-deprecating humor that is also not totally accurate. And it's also not accurate because of this like, you know, infinite regress, right? This this causal chain where at the end of it, we, we you have a guy that gets to be a truck driver driver while somebody else gets to be Nelson Rockefeller, while somebody else gets to be like, you know, something in between, like a college professor or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's both like it's like a critique of the of the driver. Like you don't want to turn these people into heroes, right? Like we're gonna talk about um uh uh Wayne Hubler later. Mm-hmm. Uh like He's not his, you know, it's true that he's black. It's true that he's been exploited. It's true that he's uh, meant to be a sympathetic character, but he's not presented in a way that's like, he's not especially interesting. He's not especially intelligent. He's not especially heroic. Um, And I I feel like for, for, you know, artists, it's very easy when you're trying to make some sort of like social comment or political point, it's very easy to turn 
you know, a, a, a character into like a representation for like that one thing. Whereas like this truck driver, he represents a few things. He's the contrast to Nelson Rockefeller, but he's also a contrast to himself. And he, he and you also do get the sense that, um, you know, like determination is a part of it, but that's not really the, the point, right? Uh, but you're also not whitewashing determination either. Right. Well, and this, this all, the section you just read takes place in the broader context of a pretty long conversation that the truck driver and Trout have. And he asks him about aluminum siding. He asks him about permastone. Uh, he insists that Trout must have some kind of, you know, vibrant social life being, um, you know, a salesperson in his community. And, and Trout's just like, nah, you know, I work alone and uh, it's, <laughs> it's not, mm -hmm not really that that big of a deal um but you know and, and and on and on and then they kind of continue forward where he this is what we talked about for a quick minute earlier from what you've seen and heard the people who get aluminum siding are they happy with what they get around yeah. coho said trout i think those were about the only really happy people i ever saw uh and then it goes on and and like like, like, talk what, about, like what, what do you think that means though that common right around coho's I think those were the only really happy people I ever saw. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of interpreted that as just a classic, like Vonnegut, like in a way, just, um, just a scathing, you know, critique on, on this kind of person in modern America. Right. Like that. And they're obviously not really happy. Right. Mm -hmm. Like we know that, but, but Trout's perception that they're, you know, that was the one thing that maybe could give them like that sugar rush of, consumptive happiness briefly and uh, you know th those are the only type of people that that he perceived to be happy in any kind of sense um yeah so i mean that, that was my perception of it and it kind of it kind of goes on one quick thing i wanted to point out and it's um it's easy to see on these two pages 110 and 111 but i find this interesting i didn't know if you had any comments on it like the way that these that these breaks are done right mm -hmm. in in the dialogue but it's always a continuation of the same conversation right afterward so to me it almost reads a little bit like poetic and jam men mm -hmm. you know yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Uh, that that vonnegut's employing here because there's no reason for him to do this right i mean it, it's just it could in most other books it would be presented as just a continuous normal paragraph by paragraph chain of conversation yeah. and description yeah, it's, he, yeah, he does these I, little I, I ellipses yeah. to break up the pages, yeah, um, and and kind of like force you into a little bit more of a pause than just a pyramid or even a paragraph break would do. Um, yeah. So, like in the middle of page one eleven, this is all by itself. The truck driver told Trout about a gas hot water heater he had bought thirty years ago, and it hadn't given him a speck of trouble in all that time. I'll be damned," said Kilgore Trout. Right? Yeah. It's like it's yeah. like such a devastating uh, little you know banal piece of of uh, dialogue, and it's like I don't know, I, I don't know what else to say about it other than like it's humorous and it's also kind of sad and just uh, a little bit of like a brutal indictment on on people, you know, and like what they decide to talk about and what they think yeah. is is worthy of conversation. And Trout's obviously you know pretty bored and really just probably wants to get to Midland City and be done with this, mm -hmm. this hitchhiking, but, uh, he's, he's a captive audience for this truck driver, you know? So, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's just a, a more subtle uh, version of like, you know, if you read uh, cat's cradle, it's like something like, 
127 or yeah. like 132 chapters, right? So with a book that's about 300 pages and you got you know that many chapters, uh, you essentially do have to have like a thing where like the chapters are these discrete units that are almost like, you know, like lines of poetry, right? Where you, you, you have to have a very kind of, you know, intentional reason for beginning and ending the chapter the certain way, the ways that they connect, right? You, you, you get a kind of like precise moment sometimes. Um, and, uh, you know, like in terms of like it being part of the same conversation, this kind of, you know, this, uh, ellipsis here, like this, just like a little bit here, mm -hmm. uh, it, uh, you know, you could have like a lone conversation, right? Maybe uh, an hour passes where they don't speak, right? Maybe mm -hmm. uh, 20 minutes pass or, or, may, or maybe something else. But the point is like whatever happens, like any one of those uh, uh, outcomes like might in fact be the case. Um, we don't have to know, but we do know that by putting in the ellipses, like it is kind of like that enjambment, right? Where you have to sort of pay, pay attention, right? Like, well, why does the line end here? Why does something begin here? Yeah. Um well, then uh, I might read a little bit from the bottom of page 111 through 113, because this is something else we both noticed and brought up um, with the name of the trucking company, right? So his brother-in-law, he said, owned 28 trucks and was president of the Pyramid Trucking Company. Why did he name his company Pyramid? Asked Trout. I mean, this thing can go 100 miles an hour if it has to. It's fast and useful and unorn unornamental. It's as up-to-date as a rocket ship. I never saw anything that was less like a pyramid than this truck. A pyramid was a sort of huge stone tomb which Egyptians had built thousands and thousands of year, years before. The Egyptians didn't build them anymore. The tombs looked like this, and tourists would come from far away to gaze at them. Why would anybody in the business of high-speed transportation name his business and his trucks after buildings which haven't moved an eighth of an inch since Christ was born? The driver's answer was prompt. It was peevish, too, as though he thought Trout was stupid to have to ask a question like that. He liked the sound of it, he said. Don't you like the sound of it? Trout nodded in order to keep things friendly. Yes, he said, it's a very nice sound. In, order, said, in order to keep things friendly. <laughs> no, to keep things friendly, right? So he doesn't have to get in a fight about it. Um, Trout sat back and thought about the conversation. He shaped it into a story which he never got around to writing until he was an old, old man. It was about a planet where the language kept turning into pure music because the creatures were so enchanted by sounds. Words became musical notes. Sentences became melodies. They were useless as conveyors of information because nobody knew or cared what the meanings of words were anymore. So leaders in government and commerce, in order to function, had to invent new and much uglier vocabularies and sentence structures all the time, which would resist being transmuted to music. You married Kilgore, the driver asked, and then it goes on, you know, from there. So it's just this little interlude where he has an idea for a, you know, for a story. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's about this idea, you know, and, and so the same idea about just liking the sound of something comes up later in the book with Excelsior fire extinguishers. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, what did you think about that? You know, this whole idea that he's got for a, a planet where the language turns into pure music. Do you think this is Vonnegut making any sort of deeper commentary about language and literature and, and maybe poetry? Or, um, or is it just, a, you know, a funny aside? 
Yeah, in my notes, I also highlighted this uh, little section and you know, I asked the question, like, is this a symbol or is this like an anti-symbol, right? Mm -hmm. Anti-symbol being, you know, things that authors could sort of uh, sprinkle into a book that, uh, uh, you know, it could be an interesting aside. It makes you kind of think about it. Uh, it could be this kind of like, you know, uh, false breadcrumbs where, you know, you're kind of like taking down a, a, a dead end of your own kind of doing a curiosity. Um, or, you know, is there something more? I mean, it, 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 it could be a symbol itself. Like you could obviously like make some kind of commentary about, um, you know, like, like politics, like, you know, being nothing more than just like people's words, right. People's just like, you know, pretty little languages, like back and forth, uh, you know, whatever you want to hear. Like, I mean, just, just think about how wild it is that, um, you know, we have a country where, uh, like roughly half of the population is so like entranced with like the kind of shit that you know Trump might say or do, right? They mm -hmm. like hang on his words and you know they 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 love that so much. And then on the other hand, you know, you have like a bunch of people that are like really into uh maybe they're not really into like Joe Biden, but let's say you have you know like like an Obama type figure, they're really mm -hmm. into the words as well, right? But ultimately you know in both those eventualities it's just words right obama doesn't do shit trump doesn't do shit biden doesn't do shit the next person's not going to do shit it's more or less the same in that regard um so you know I, I feel like you could read this like any any number of ways you could you could even sort of you know uh keep it as an anti-symbol you know within within the text and it could still work although again with the, with the ca caveat that you know, there's like, there's enough sort of like little stuff like this in the book where it doesn't totally cohere into something like totalizing, which is a bit of a, a detraction, right? Which is why it can't be, you know, something like, um, uh, Slaughterhouse Five, for example. But, mm -hmm. um, I don't know, like, what, what was your interpretation there? Yeah. Well, one other thing that occurred to me when I read that was, um, it, it well, two things. One, it gets a little bit at the idea that, um, you know, anybody can engage with, with the aesthetics of something, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a guy who starts a, a trucking company and presumably, you know, a, a blue collar-ish type guy. Maybe he worked in trucking mm -hmm. or manufacturing or something previously. And so now he's a, an entrepreneur. He starts this company and he simply likes the sound of the word pyramid. Um, you know, that's an aesthetic judgment. He's, he's deciding to, to base something that, you know, his livelihood is going to hinge on going forward in a way, you know, in the marketing of this company on just the way a word sounds. Um, so I think that's one thing, but I, I think the other aspect to it is, um, you know, maybe that Vonnegut is saying, um, again, you know, this, this is kind of what, what artists do, right? You know, like a poet is gonna put a word somewhere or a painter is gonna put a mark somewhere because it feels right or they like the sound of it, they like the look mm -hmm. of it. Vonnegut himself writing this book or, the narrator as the, you know, however unreliable he might be, he's, he's writing this book. Well, a lot of the things he's going to put in there, he just probably likes the sound of, you know, that's part of his own style. So mm -hmm. um, I just thought that that was kind of a, a, again, one of these quick little, you know, maybe blink and you miss it, but it's, it's a little point that Vonnegut's making about how aesthetics work and inform, you know, art and also just the world around us period, whether mm -hmm. we really, uh, think that through very often or not and then obviously like trout makes it into this kind of absurdist idea uh where people can't get anything done because the the language is so flowery and musical but um yeah that's that's pretty much it i just thought it's it's an interesting 
interesting idea, interesting comment. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't think of it from a, the kind of aesthetics perspective, how it refers back to uh, uh, art. But I mean, it, it would be definitely in fitting with, um, you know, some of the other arguments in this book. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have a comment in chapter 15, but uh, unless you have anything before that, I could tackle that. Yeah, go ahead and, and jump there. Yeah, so chap so chapter 15 is just this kind of like um you know it's it's kind of like a, a bottleneck for uh everything i guess where first of all it's uh i think it's the longest chapter in the book i think it's about 40 pages long right which mm -hmm. is uh, much longer than than anything else here yeah. um and so uh, uh Dwayne uh hoover is just kind of like being like the, the bad like so to the extent right that he's also like a, a machine among machines right um although he at this point doesn't believe that he's a machine any longer right that he's the only one with free will uh they're also like bringing up his uh like his bad chemicals right so so the way that this alchemy is described in this book is on the one hand you have uh ideas right and 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 both Vonnegut and Kilgore Trout uh, as well as like the the, the narrator uh, in this book, uh, they are big believers in the powers of ideas. Um, and on the other hand, uh, the interface with human beings is people also have chemicals, right? And there's something that he, you know, euphemistically calls bad chemicals, right? And uh, I, I, I think this is like very effectively done where uh, we have like a, a Nazi flag here. And this is, this is how it's being characterized. Duane certainly wasn't alone as far as having bad chemicals inside of him was concerned. He had plenty of company throughout all history. In his own lifetime, for instance, the people in a country called Germany were so full of bad chemicals for a while that they actually built factories whose only purpose was to kill people by the millions. The people were delivered by railroad trains. When the Germans were full of bad chemicals, their flag looked like this. Like very kind of matter of fact statement. Mm -hmm. Here's what their flag looked like after they got well again. Right. Doesn't even bother, you know, coloring it in. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, it's just, you know, it, like, it's kind of like you, you go from something that I'm not sure if this is just kind of like, you know, uh, bias looking back because we know the Nazis were bad, but there's like something really like unsettling about this image versus this totally blanked you know denatured yeah. you know sort of thing after they got well again they manufactured a cheap and durable automobile which became popular all over the world especially among young people it looked like this <laughs> people called it the beetle a real beetle looked like this the mechanical beetle was made by germans the real beetle was made by the creator of the universe. So um, he takes like this, you know, historical event and he condenses it essentially to, you know, that kind of deterministic sort of thing, right? They were affected by bad chemicals. Now, these bad chemicals aren't just kind of like, you know, innately you're born, innately you're a German. So you're going to be, you know, you have a predilection towards Nazism, right? That's not what's happening. But he's, he's, he, he's saying that all human beings have certain chemicals. Once that starts to interface with a certain kind of idea or a certain set of ideas, you will eventually get an outcome like Nazism, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
And, you know, the, the way that this kind of like, it, it sort of like pays respect to history as a causal chain. But I just found it like a, a very interesting way to discuss human beings and how just very, just very quickly, right? Because as soon as the war, war is over, right, as if by magic, right? You change the flag and then you start doing this, you know, you start making this car, which looks so, you know, unthreatening and looks yeah. like so kind of like, um, you know, the, the exact opposite of what you experienced. And, and all that you had was, you know, the passage of time, the passage of ideas, a new way to interface with these chemicals, which, you know, could be good, bad, neutral, whatever. Um, anyway, I, I don't know if you have any uh, comments on that, but I found that very kind of like set of interesting asides. Yeah, I don't think I have anything further there. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, my other moments to draw out of chapter 15, um, just really quick, at the bottom of page 155. Mm-hmm. They talk about this character that that Trout came up with called Ralston Valentine, who was mm-hmm. the son of a safe cracker, and he sandpapered his fingertips like his dad, but he wasn't a safe cracker. Ralston was so good at touching women the mm-hmm. way they wanted to be touched that tens of thousands of them became mm-hmm. his willing slaves. They abandoned their husbands or lovers for him in Trout's story, and Ralston Valentine became president of the United States thanks to the votes of women. Mm-hmm. So uh, just, again, just kind of a funny little lampooning of of the u.s and our our democratic system where you know it's kind of based on um trite things or or you know things that are just so (laughs) i mean Mm -hmm. it's oriented around celebrity or or who can uh Mm -hmm. who can do things that are really kind of inconsequential yeah in, in a larger sense uh but people just you know become fans for whatever reason and then um where Harry LeSabre, who's another character we haven't really talked about at all, but, you know, he's, uh, what, a sales manager at Dwayne Hoover's Pontiac dealership. Mm-hmm. And this chapter's going on in the context of Hawaiian Week, which is supposed to be kind of like, you know, a fun promo uh, at the at the dealership. But Dwayne gets upset at, at Harry's uh, attitude and his dress and all this kind of stuff. And they're trying to liven things up. But on page 168, Harry is talking with, uh, with his, well, just previous to that, he's talking with his wife and, um, they talk, I guess they have a, a black maid, right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, they use the word reindeer as code for black people. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, you know, Vonnegut makes it clear, uh, both directly and indirectly throughout the book that like. Midland City in Shepherdstown is a pretty intensely racist place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's got r- really racist history, some of which is like really brutal. Um, and then, you know, so so they're just kind of talking about this. And then on page 168, they're having like a bit all conversation, but it says the reindeer problem was essentially this. Nobody white had much use for black people anymore, except for the gangsters who sold the black people used cars and dope and furniture. Still, the reindeer went on reproducing. There were these useless big black animals everywhere, and a lot of them had very bad dispositions. They were given small amounts of money every month, so they wouldn't have to steal. There was talk of them giving them very cheap dope, too, to keep them listless and cheerful and uninterested in reproduction. The Midland City Police Department and the Midland County Sheriff's Department were composed mainly of white men. They had racks and racks of submachine guns and 12-gauge automatic shotguns for an open season on reindeer, which was bound to come. Listen, I'm serious, said Grace to Harry. This is the asshole of the universe. 
let's split to a condominium on Maui and live for a change. So they did. So just yeah. that one paragraph, you know, where he takes a pretty serious aside to uh, just succinctly talk about, you know, mm. still the modern day, you know, perception of, of black people. And um, it hit, it hits pretty hard, you know, I mean, it's mm. just a very concise way of, of summing up, you know, a lot of these problems that we're seeing continue to, to persist. Yeah. I mean, and even, and even this like comment, right. About, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just accurate. Like, especially with hindsight, right. It's not, uh, it's not controversial anymore to say this, right. Uh, nobody white had much use for black people anymore, except for the gangsters who sold the black people used cars and dope and furniture. So the gangsters that we're talking about, we're not just talking about like, you know, random black gangsters. Uh, we're not talking about like crime in that kind of visible way. We're talking about, you know, any like used car salesman, right. That would, mm -hmm. and you know, the, the type of people that would uh, be forced to get used cars in the same way that, you know, 2008, the type of people that were forced to get a uh, subprime uh, mortgages, right. Cause this was the yeah. only line, line of credit that was available. Um, so you simply go for it. Um, and 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 even like, the yeah toward toward the bottom there yeah. the listen i'm serious this is the asshole of the universe let's split to a condominium on maui and live for a change so they did which yeah. i think is pretty much the last we hear of the la sabers you know yeah um you know just an indictment on uh, yet another approach to dealing with with this problem right just ignore yeah. it leave and their idea is to go buy a condo on maui and live you know that's in italics live for a change but we you know, we kind of know what they must mean by that, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's, you know, drink Mai Tais and, and golf every day. Mm -hmm. And it's still just a really poor use of a life, an excuse for a life. But to them, that's, you know, it's like the dream. That's something that's better than what they have right now. Yeah. Um, you know, just Vonnegut, you know, skewering American culture yet further there. So, yeah. Um, and I mean, there, there's like a bunch of, uh, other things uh, still that we could like uh, uh, page 142 um, when we have like the, the waitress, right. Uh, uh, speaking to, to, to uh, Dwayne. Um, so this was because their English teachers would wince and cover their ears and give them flunking grades and so on. Whenever they failed to speak like English aristocrats before the first world war. Also, they were told that they were unworthy to speak or write their language if they couldn't love or understand incomprehensible novels and poems and plays about people long ago and far away, such as Ivanhoe. The black people would not put up with this, but they went on talking English every which way. They refused to read books they couldn't understand on the grounds that they couldn't understand them. They would ask such impudent questions as, as before I want to read no tale of two cities, Wofo. Right. And it's just sort mm -hmm. of like ends there, right? This is uh this is also like kind of you know trapped between the uh, ellipsis, right? Yeah, yeah. Um and you know, like th this is a, a, a on the one hand, it's like, you know, this kind of image, I can see a lot of white people responding to it like uh oh well why you know why don't black people just do this reading? Why don't they just you know like, get better at it? Why don't you know blah blah blah? And uh, Vonnegut, on the one hand, he sort of like understands this, right? And he's it's almost it's almost as if like there is a, there is a kind of reader out there of this uh, of this book, right? That um, would 
take this characterization as uh, an, either an attack on black people or it would kind of like gel with their own kind of biases about, you know, non-whites. Um, on the other hand, you know, this is like Vonnegut, you know, simply saying uh, nothing uh, tangible was given to black people to make them understand, you know, this, uh, uh, you know, th this portion of the white world. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, there's nothing within these books that is uh, uh, useful to them, um, you know, to the extent that, you know, it's not useful to white people either. It's even less useful to blacks. And instead of just, you know, going along with it, you know, we, we have this response, you know, woofo, why am I going to mm -hmm. read this, the, 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 this thing? Right. And this is uh, sarcastically characterized as impudent. Yeah. Um, whereas in fact, like it's, likely the uh correct answer from someone that says that um I, I i really have uh nothing of interest here for myself right um mm -hmm. uh, and and you know the, the the way that you would address this is not you know to to shame people you would address this by changing uh, you know the internal realities that um allow this the state of affairs right where wafo is the most logical response as opposed to you know any number of, of larger responses although just like i said with a uh, ethan with ethan pinch a few nights ago i'm also very skeptical of this idea of if we have like any kind of like marxist style equality i don't think that the majority of people will end up suddenly becoming interested in using their leisure time for good i think it, we will mm -hmm. simply get an office space situation where you come upon, you know, suddenly all this money and you say that right now my dream is to wake up and to do nothing, right? Simply mm -hmm. because that, like, I think that's just the inclination of most people and that's not going to change without serious uh, uh, cybernetic interventions. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like, you know, like there, there, there's, there's tons of like, you know, racial commentary here and a lot, like a lot of it, honestly, like if this was written today, like you know like this would be so like considered non-politically correct mm -hmm. and yet it's it's the kind of commentary that actually tells you what is going on in the world right all, all, all yeah. the people that are you know saying that they in fact want this change or that change or that change here's the actual description of reality that they on the other hand don't want to deal with yeah um again i i know i'm being a bit selfish here we're up on noon so do we want to keep kind of ripping through yeah more. Uh, for, uh, for, for, for those that don't know he wants to watch a soccer match that's right he wants to give up great r for soccer well, well I, i'm also trying to get out of here though because i'm going to take a very nice long bike ride yeah um so wh wh where do you want to like what do you have next um my next thing was uh, like kind of the introduction the physical introduction of the narrator into the holiday inn on page 197 mm-hmm uh, right, and he he wears these. Uh, the lenses were silvered, were mirrors to anyone looking my way. Anyone wanting to know what my eyes were like was confronted with his or her own twin reflections. Where other people in a cocktail lounge had eyes, I had two holes into another universe. I had leaks, and you had highlighted Vonnegut's use of oh, the yeah, word yeah. leaks yeah. for mirrors. So, um, you know, asking why that works so well and uh and why he like continues to to use it so so much um first of all I, I mean i don't know why but that illustration just like made me laugh so hard when i saw it mm -hmm. i mean it's just one among all the other ones he does but like 
imagining someone that looks kind of like Kurt Vonnegut sitting in a cocktail lounge at a Holiday Inn in Indiana wearing those sunglasses. Um, it's just like, I don't know, it's hilarious to me. I, I, I like have this mental image and it makes me laugh. But um, yeah, as far as like using the word leaks, uh, you know, I think that man, like, why does that work well for mirrors? And why does he insist on talking about a mirror being like a window into another universe? Um, frankly, I don't really know. It's kind of a hard thing for me to pinpoint. I, I guess that... But, but, but like, it makes sense, though, is the thing, right? Like, yeah. from a writerly perspective, the word leak, like, you could justify it, right? It's clever, right? But what is it about it that it's clever? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's, it, it, it does work well. Um, I think that maybe even the idea like the way that he presents it is it's it's a window into another universe but that you would leak into that universe like because mirrors are so common in the modern day you have mm -hmm. you look at yourself in a mirror every day presumably uh at a bare minimum just in the the bathroom or in your house but then there's skyscrapers with windows there's people wearing sunglasses you see yourself in you're in your car you look at yourself in mirrors right so like now modern day there are all of these little leaks into mm -hmm. into another space and another universe and maybe even because the world is is either upside down or turned a different way when you look in a mirror or if you try to read in a mirror like just yesterday i was getting my hair cut and there was a tv i on could tell me. i could tell i was gonna say very nice fucking hair i wish i had hair as <laughs> thick and luxurious as yours at this age yeah. Hey, um, I, I'm trying to ride it while I've got it. You know what I mean? Um, but like, you know, I was trying to read the, um, the, the what, uh, what's it called? The, the dialogue at the base that's, uh, oh my God, like the subtitles, the subtitles, mm -hmm. right? There were subtitles on and I was looking at it through the mirror in the, the barber's chair and it's like, you can't really read it, but so it makes everything kind of weird and different. Like, like mm -hmm. it's, you know, I think it was the food network or whatever. So it's like this banal thing. I mean, I know what it is, but I, it's all presented to you in this different way. Um, so, so I don't know. I think it's just a clever little way that Vonnegut's saying, uh, you know, reality can change. It can warp. It can immediately yeah. take you somewhere else, uh, through. Yeah. Just... And, and, and I mean, like, you know, the, so it's like a couple of things, like, you know, just like a uh, literary history, right. I mean, you know, we all know like, uh, Alice in Wonderland through the looking glass, all of that. Yeah. Uh, so there's this like, classic idea that you know uh you know a mirror is like as, as a kind of portal into another world uh, and the word the word leak right i mean the leak implies uh there is something coming from you know there's like some kind of like foreign you know interference right like you have like yeah. you, you have you have like something coming from somewhere that doesn't belong right like a leak from a from a ceiling or whatever you know uh same thing with, with this idea right because um, yep. uh, I mean, it is clever, right? It does kind of like stain your brain a little bit. Like ever, ever since I uh, first uh, read this book, like I've always remembered this, this thing, like the, this idea of a leak as a mirror. Um, mm -hmm. And I, and uh, you know, like it, it also obviously is like similar to what goes on in uh, Cat's Cradle, right? Where there's like an entire kind of invented vocabulary, uh, which is also clever, but for a different reason, it's clever, you know, in the kind of like, um, uh, ten, like Tim Pan Alley kind of thing, right? Like, uh, um, anyway, uh, I think that's enough about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the, the next thing I had was page 226 with Rabo Karabekian defending himself. 
And what, what, uh, what page is that? 226. 226. Okay. Because, uh, you know, an, another little subtle commentary that Vonnegut's making on the art world, you know, by now, people in Midland City know that Karabekian has been paid $50,000 for this painting that was procured, I, I, I think, by Barrytron, the head of Barrytron. Uh, it wasn't Elliot Rosewater that bought the painting, I don't think. Barrytron, so. the, uh, the, the company? Yeah the, yeah, the guy that runs it, I forget his, uh, his actual name in the book. But anyway, um, yeah, so, so you know, it's 50 grand, which is way more money than any of them have ever seen and will ever mm -hmm. see for the labor they do. And they're jealous of how little it seems that Karabekian worked to make that much money. Uh, and, and he's also just sort of an asshole on top of that, right? Like in his interactions with, with people for the most part. Um, like I think he, he gets upset at Bonnie McMahon for saying breakfast of champions when she serves martinis, mm -hmm. right? He kind of like brings that up. So anyway, um, oh, and, and he, he offends by saying that he's not that impressed with Mary Alice Miller, the, mm -hmm. uh, the young female swim champion who was like Midland city's main famous person or whatever. But then on page 226, well, we don't think much of your painting. I've seen better pictures done by a five-year-old. Karabekian slid off his bar stool so he could face all those enemies standing up. He certainly surprised me. I expected him to retreat in a hail of olives, maraschino cherries, and lemon rinds, but he was majestic up there. Listen, he said so calmly. I have read the editorial against my painting in your wonderful newspaper. I have read every word of the hate mail you have been thoughtful enough to send to New York. This embarrassed people some. The painting did not exist until I made it, Karabekian went on. Now that it does exist, nothing would make me happier than to have it reproduced again and again and vastly improved upon by all the five-year-olds in town. I would love for your children to find pleasantly and playfully what it took me many angry years to find. I now give you my word of honor, he went on, that the picture your city owns shows everything about life which truly matters with nothing left out. It is a picture of the awareness of every animal. It is the immaterial core of every animal, the I am to which all messages are sent. It is all that is alive in any of us, in a mouse, in a deer, in a cocktail waitress. It is unwavering and pure, no matter what preposterous adventure may befall us. A sacred picture of St. Anthony alone is one vertical, unwavering band of light. If a cockroach were near him, or a cocktail waitress, the picture would show two such bands of light. Our awareness is all that is alive and may be sacred in any of us. Everything else about us is dead machinery. I have just heard from this cocktail waitress here, this vertical band of light, a story about her husband and an idiot who was about to be executed at Shepherdstown. Very well. Let a five-year-old paint a sacred interpretation of that encounter. Let that five-year-old strip away the idiocy, the bars, the waiting electric chair, the uniform of the guard, the gun of the guard, the bones and meat of the guard. What is that perfect picture which any five-year-old can paint? Two unwavering bands of light. Ecstasy bloomed on the barbaric face of Rabo Karabekian, which is just a really nice line right there, like mm -hmm. musically. Citizens of Midland City, I salute you, he said. You have given a home to a masterpiece. Dwayne Hoover, incidentally, wasn't taking any of this in. He was still hypnotized, turned inward. He was thinking about moving fingers, writing, and moving on, and so forth. He had bats in his bell tower. He was off his rocker. He wasn't playing with a full deck of cards. And that's how the chapter ends. It's chapter 19. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, just kind of an interesting, like, you know, Karabekian's not a sympathetic character. Um, and this is like him 
getting all you know pissy and trying to mm-hmm. defend his i think it, it was like uh some avocado colored house paint was the mm-hmm. main background and then it was like some like security tape or mm-hmm. like uh bright tape that he made as one vertical band to represent saint anthony or whatever and um so it's it's kind of i think vonnegut it is addressing the you know the modern art world and the the outrageous sums that some of these artworks command and that like uh wealthy patrons are willing to pay for when you know it really doesn't appear much has gone into it but yeah like a slight defense of the fact that you know at least an artist might have some kind of intention behind yeah. their artwork but that, yeah, he's he's trying to give a little of a, a little bit of empathy there yeah he is because you know the whole like my five-year-old could do the same thing which i think like you and i and others have argued in the past like with abstract expressionism like it often does seem to be that way uh and it maybe literally is that way but um yeah, either there is like some defense of the fact that like he's saying, well, at least I there is thought behind this, even though you don't mm-hmm. think so. You know, I I did have kind of intention. Now, yeah, whether it's it's well done and et cetera. I mean, that's what can be debated, but um, just kind of an interesting monologue there from Karabakian. I don't know if you had any other thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 a def- it's a kind of like you know like self defense that um, on the one hand like it, it's memorable, right? Uh, and mm-hmm. in fact, like th- this uh, image, right, this unwavering band of light. Uh, after uh, um, Karabakian uh, mentions it, it comes up again and again, like as a kind yeah. of it, it becomes throughout the rest of the text. There's like about seventy pages after this that becomes itself a kind of like little controlling metaphor, yeah. right? Which was like a nice touch. Um, but like in this defense, like it, it's memorable, right? It's well written. Uh, but and you know, Vonnegut would know this as a writer, right? Uh, uh, it's also like a very kind of like solipsistic defense, right? Um, you know, mm-hmm. to to the extent that any kind of abstract expressionism can can exist and can be defended, it will always be on these terms, right? It will be like, well, you know, I was trying to do this or that thing, you know, uh, in 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 this drawing, but it's all it's always going to be very kind of reflexive it's always going to be self-referential um it's it's and uh if it is like a reference to like something that is you know actually on the canvas uh not that you can't make references to what's on the canvas i mean you do but um it's always going to like pale in comparison to all this other stuff you know that you could make surrounding it and all the like internal stuff that that people normally come to bear right Mm -hmm. um and you know, like it's it, it it gives it empathy, right? But then on the other hand, I, I think Vonnegut is sort of like uh, you know, like there's this kind of like bedazzling, right, of 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 the of the reader where you could easily come away, uh, you know, like if, let's say that you're a bad reader, you could easily come away with this thinking, like, oh yeah, I fi- I finally get it. Abstract expressionism is like fucking wonderful, right? This right, is like the, right. Be- the best thing ever. But, you know, again, just literally reading this, this is, you know, this is a very, very solipsistic defense. There's almost no reference to the canvas. Because that's the thing. If you were to make references to the canvas, uh, it it wouldn't be as interesting, right? Because right. Uh, otherwise it would be painted to the canvas and then telling everybody, see, see, no, this is Anthony. This is Anthony. This is St. Anthony. This is, mm-hmm. this is a band of light. This is a band of light. This is a band. And it just wouldn't work, right? Um, so... Uh, it's it, it gives it the empathy, but it doesn't it doesn't go all the way like into the territory. Let's call it forgiveness. Let's be totally condescending here. It yeah. does not forgive abex expression, abex right? 
Um, right. And even the, the line I said was, it's a nice sounding line is a bit of a giveaway, like ecstasy bloomed on the barbaric face of Rabo Karabekian. And then he yeah. just does this. Not, salute. Yeah. Yeah. You've given home to a masterpiece. Like it's just, it's so, uh, you know, pompous and it's yeah. just such, he's just being such an ass. Right. So, yeah. And, and uh, one thing, like the, the last uh, cliches in the chapter, I mean, these are literally cliches, but they work very well in this context, right? So I think yeah. it's worth mentioning. So we're talking about Dwayne Hoover. We know that he's like slowly lose, losing his mind. After this chapter, right? Uh, this is this this was 15. No, this wasn't 15. 19, but, yeah. but But, but a- after this chapter is when he starts kind of like, you know, going off on this rampage um uh and and the, the, uh, right before that happens and it's like a comical rampage right and this this is a comic yeah. even even this like defense of abex right it's like very comic you know it, itself as well right um and it, it's it's phrased as he had bats in his bell tower he was off his rocker he wasn't playing with a full deck of cards uh, I think very often when you have like cliches like that, just stacking up and the way that that Vonnegut sometimes does it, uh, because there's like so much comedy involved, it's forcing you to like treat these statements literally. Yes. And, you know, you, 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 you often like, you know, people often like with a cliche, you often forget what it's actually saying. Right. I mean, and it's kind of like funny when you think about it, like, he wasn't playing with a full deck of cards, right? This like right. this like total, you know, euphemism, right? Um, and you know, like th- this is true of a lot of a lot of cliches. Like there are ways where you could use cliches in a vonnegut esque way, in a prosaic way that makes them not only justifiable but also like funny, right? Mm-hmm. And then after this, you know, you just have this like total comic meltdown where, you know, he goes on this rampage. People get hurt, and maybe we just wrap things up uh, there now. Um, yeah well and and maybe we can just briefly talk about the uh the end of the book before the epilogue because you already highlighted the epilogue you know where we've got more scenes of the narrator addressing trout directly and this kind of stuff but um you know the final on page 288 kind of the final scene before that is after hoover's rampage trout is uh riding in the the martha super ambulance Mm -hmm. um you know along with some other people uh, and, and so it just says, and so on, Kilgore Trout now peeled strips and patches of plastic from his burning shins and feet in the ambulance. He had to use his uninjured left hand, etc. in big block letters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's even a moment where earlier Vonnegut addresses, you know kind of being called out for his consistent use of so and listen and and so on and etc um and it's him doing it as the narrator uh which was on page 234 you know he uses that same block etc mm-hmm. and it says and it is in order to acknowledge the continuity of this polymer that i begin so many sentences with and and so and end so many paragraphs with and so on Mm-hmm. and so on <laughs> it's all like an ocean cried dostoevsky i say it's all like cellophane mm-hmm. which i just think is a hilarious line you know and um it, you know him once again using something like banal and kind of gross and modern and corporate right like cellophane this mm-hmm. this plastic thing that we wrap things in to preserve them or whatever um, and that's the whole universe in a way is, is all like cellophane. So then, you know, at the end, Trout's, he's like peeling away this stuff that has 
it's the runoff, right? It's like the pollution runoff mm-hmm. from Barytron mm-hmm. that's in the creek. And, and then his, his, his legs become like, you know, covered in this plastic, right? Yeah. It's like burning his shins. Yeah, exactly. So, but uh, it's just so like he had to use his uninjured left hand, et cetera. I mean, th- to me, that it was like a little bit of a, um, like a filmic ending. Like you, you can have this, this image of uh, all these people in the ambulance and the, the camera kind of zooms in on Trout and he's just sitting there sort of like totally disheveled, disgruntled more mm-hmm. than ever. And he's just picking away at this plastic, you know, his right hand has had a fingertip bitten off and he's, you know, got it bandaged and bloody. And then he's just kind of slowly peeling away the plastic mm-hmm. and then just kind of like a zoom back out over Midland city or something. It's like, et cetera, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think it's a pretty good end to, to the book before the epilogue. I think if Vonnegut hadn't put an epilogue in, it would, mm-hmm. it would function as a nice ending and yeah. a little bit. Um, it's it kind of just, it's abrupt right yeah. there's no tying up of any loose ends it's just hoover goes on the rampage everyone's dealing with the fallout from that and then it's yeah. over this is why the epilogue it does make it better right it does tie up some loose ends it does yeah. sort of give you know a finality uh and you know an arc especially to, to the narrator right which is this kind of you know major uh thing and just like very quickly back on page 214 um mm-hmm. uh uh so he says, I had no respect whatsoever for the creative works of either the painter or the novelist. I thought Carabacane with his meaningless pictures had entered into a conspiracy with millionaires to make poor people feel stupid. I thought Beatrice Kiesler had joined hands with other old fashioned storytellers to make people believe that life had leading characters, minor characters, significant details, insignificant details, that it had lessons to be learned, tests to be passed, and a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? Perhaps it's a critique of some of the critique that I've been making here, right? Where, you know, you do have some loose ends that aren't really dealt with. Uh, You do have some details that don't necessarily go anywhere in this book. Uh, You don't have this kind of like totalizing uh, uh, force that you have elsewhere. Um, Mm -hmm. Uh. Uh, which, you know, and it's it's written in a nice way, right? As I approached my 50th birthday, I had become more and more enraged and mystified by the idiot decisions made by my countrymen. And then I had come suddenly to pity them, for I understood how innocent and natural it was for them to behave so abominably, and which such abominable results. They were doing their best to live like people invented in storybooks. This was the reason Americans shot each other so often. It was a convenient literary device for ending short stories and books. And I, you know, I think it's like a very kind of a, a smart set of commentary because, I mean, like you could say, like literally, obviously, it's not, it's not true, mm-hmm. but um, you know, to, like this is this is why art, you know, has any kind of power, right? It's it's to the extent that we, when you read, for example, a short story, you know, uh, uh, you are wondering of what relationship this has with reality, your day to day life, someone else's reality, the fabric of reality, some underlying reality, um, and I mean, this is just a very nice way of of uh, uh, framing all of that, right? And when he talks about writing. Uh, he, he says, uh, uh, I, you know, I'd resolve to write about life. I resolved to shun storytelling. I would write about life. Every person would be exactly as important as any other. 
all facts would also be given equal weight weightiness. Nothing would be left out. Let others bring order to chaos. I would bring chaos to order instead, which I think I have done, which mm-hmm. this, this is exactly what art is, right? You have, you know, you, you could write literally about anything, right? You could walk, you could be walking down the right. street, right? And it's now, you know, uh, summer, you're going to see dead slugs all over the street. You could write about that. There's an, an there's, there's an almost limitless n- number of topics, right? Um, and it, by its nature, it's chaotic. Not that it's, you know, chaotic in the sense that there's no reason for its occurrence, but it's not, uh, it, th- th- there's no, there's no, reason that is satisfying there right just mm-hmm. innately with just the way that things are there's no innately satisfying reason behind you know if you if you look if you look at andy warhol sort of like taking a camera on the street recording that for eight hours and calling it a film the reason why it doesn't really work as a film is there's nothing innately satisfying about an uninterrupted eight hours of reality, right? Or truth that's not ordered in any way, right? You have to do the ordering, right? Your, you know, mm-hmm. your, your hand has to be essentially that gardener. Yep. Yeah, I, I think that's well said. And um, wrapping up with final comments, again, I, I think we both agree that it's it's an excellent novel my main critique i guess would be as we mentioned earlier um there are some scenes that could be trimmed and i don't think the book would lose anything um you know and 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 i don't off the top of my head i don't even know that i could highlight them directly but i think as a reader would go through and then you're kind of rehashing the novel in your head you would think yeah some of that stuff you know Mm -hmm. while it might be funny or entertaining or well written whatever um it it didn't necessarily need to be there and that's part of what makes slaughterhouse so good is is how concise and dense it is mm-hmm. um but the it's an excellent book it's uh very enjoyable to read wildly entertaining in a lot of ways um uh, I, I, i'm not sure how you could read it and not be entertained i guess mm. yeah um we, we were gonna like briefly discuss the uh, negative re- review that it received in the new york times uh oh, yeah. pu- publication but <laughs> i don't i don't think it's worth it and honestly i think uh you know the failing new york times has been bullied enough right mm-hmm. um yeah well and and one thing that i noticed uh is and maybe this was vonnegut again just being um tongue-in-cheek but he actually on my edition he pulls a quote from that review but makes oh, yeah. it positive <laughs> oh wait let me see <laughs> yeah i don't know yeah. if you have that on yours but oh, i didn't even realize that that was from the new york times yeah marvelous yeah. vonnegut wheels out all the complaints about america and makes them seem fresh funny outrageous hateful and lovable right and if you could attributes it to them so. and, but, but 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 honestly that's also a comment on just the nature of of reviews in general right yeah they're so like yeah. I, I like i remember when i was a kid and like reading like positive reviews of like all sorts of shit poetry and not knowing any better and i would think like i wonder what am i missing here like what am i not understanding here and you know you you could turn all you know almost anything uh you know uh, positive or negative twist it around because in almost all situations people are never critics are never talking about what ought to be discussed right they're never doing Mm -hmm. it um so it, it ultimately doesn't even matter yeah i i like i said to you in the the show notes that review is 
it's just brutal. I, it, it doesn't address anything of substance about the book. Yeah. And the, the, the author of it's talking about struggling with so many and so ons and et cetera's and listens yeah. that, you know, these are devices Vonnegut yeah. uses them all the time. Um, so it, it just, I don't know, it comes across as sort of self-serving and just completely inwardly directed at yeah. the, the reviewer's own needs from a novel or something. It's, uh, yeah, it's not good. It's not for, for for book reviews, there needs to be a word count minimum. Yeah, there should. Or be. for any reviews in general, like like fucking like Jonathan Rap Rosenbaum, like with his like literally a fucking like five sentences on another woman, right? And we're we're gonna get we're gonna get mm-hmm. a taste of what the movie really is, right? With five sentences, we shouldn't do that. This was also an exceptionally short review um that should never i mean you just can't you can't you go you know like there's a difference between a positive a review negative review and a good or bad review right yeah. a bad review misses the point a good review misses the point being positive or negative is beside the point yeah um yeah okay so we could uh, uh end here i guess we'll be coming back with uh uh next time that we talk it should be uh sonnets from the portuguese elizabeth barrett browning um mm-hmm. lot lots and lots yep. of just individually close readings for people to follow along uh, with a text uh, with us um thank you guys for watching if you haven't hit like please do so if you're not subscribed please do so and we will see you again very soon Oh my god. Oh my god.